to the show, everybody. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. We got a, a giant victory from Corey Bush that we'll talk about, but we also have a defeat that stings. Stings quite a bit. I know all of you were feeling it. Um, but at least we have answers. At least we have answers. I know that's cold comfort, but... Um, it does provide context and perspective that's vital moving forward. So um, a lot of stuff to get to today. Nina Turner, Corey Bush, uh, Bosch versus Charlie Kirk, Andrew Cuomo. Um, jam-packed, y'all. Jam-packed. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into it. Here we go. Nina Turner lost her race against Chantal Brown in Ohio's 11th district. Um, The reason why she lost is very simple. There was a colossal infusion of corporate money at the end of the campaign, and it buried her. It buried her. What What that money was able to buy in the final stretch of the campaign um, was well-timed lies. That's what that money bought. So uh, let me give you just a little sampling of what Nina's team was dealing with in the home stretch of this campaign. So there's there's an article in The Intercept titled, In the Race Against Nina Turner, GOP Donors Fund Chantel Brown. GOP Donors. With one week left in the Ohio primary, Republican donors have picked their Democrat and the pro-Israel PAC supporting her. So um, some Republican donors hopped in super late, but you also had... Um, some big packs jump in well before the final week. It was probably in the, final, in the last month or two. So here's the biggest thing that led to Nina's defeat. 
Democratic Majority for Israel, a hybrid PAC super PAC that has spent $1.2 million on ads supporting Brown and opposing Turner in the election, also had a slew of donors who have made ample donations to Republican candidates and causes. So they hopped in and spent $1.2 million on ads. They say supporting Brown and opposing Turner, but it was mostly opposing Nina Turner. Um, so I'll get, in a second, I'll get to the stuff that that money bought, but let me paint the picture for you a little more when it comes to the dollar figures that we're talking about. Uh, Daniel Marin says, with an update from Dem, PAC, Dem Action Pack, the pro-Turner Super PAC, the totals for either side are either pro-Turner or anti-Brown, 904000 either pro-Brown or anti-Turner, about $2.7 million. So, you do the math on that. You do the math on that. Uh, that is a huge difference. And, by the way, with Nina, it was more spread out over time for the entire campaign. With Chantel Brown, it was focused towards the end of the campaign. She was lagging way early on. And then Hillary Clinton jumped in. A bunch of corporate Democrats jumped in. Jim Clyburn jumped in. Uh, big corporate money jumped in. Republican money jumped in at the end. And they did a well-timed surge. And they did vicious, vicious lying attack ads, again, that we're going to get to. Um, so the other thing you can see there is Third Way shells out another 255000 on digital ads opposing Nina Turner in the Ohio 11 special, bringing their total investment to $505,000. So Third Way, the corporate Democrat group, was spending 500000 against Nina Turner towards the end of the campaign. The total outside spending in the Nina Turner Chantel Brown dust up has galloped past $3.5 million. All right, some more, some more. Here's the chart that I want to show you guys. Check out the bag dropping. Check out the bag dropping ahead of tomorrow's Ohio 11th primary. DMFI spent more opposing Nina Turner than nearly all other outside spending combined. Look at that chart. Look at that chart. So DMFI pack, so that's the Israeli pack, they're blowing everybody else out of the water, and most of those ads are anti-Nina Turner negative ads, not really pro Chantel Brown ads. So they just drowned everybody out and blanketed the airwaves and carpet bombed the people of Ohio's 11th district with flat out lies about Nina Turner. So again, just to give you a taste of what we were dealing with in the home stretch of this election, um, you have this. So here's some mailers that went out. Raise the minimum wage. They say Nina Turner's against it. Universal health care, they say Nina Turner's against it. Immigration reform, they say Nina Turner's against it. So they're just flat out lying about her. They're lying about her because she criticized the Democratic platform, because she said it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't give us Medicare for all. It doesn't give us universal health care. Um, and we went through the list of the other things that it didn't do. I mean, there were a number of things that were layups that Democrats left out of their platform, including, by the way, uh, human rights for Palestinians, a condemnation of illegal settlements, conditioning the money to Israel to say, hey, you guys got to buy by international law or else you're not going to get a subsidy from us and you're not going to get weapons deals from us. Nina took a stand and said, this doesn't have universal health care, Medicare for all. This doesn't have protections for Palestinians. So I'm against it from the left. So they just come out, lie about it, and say she's against raising the minimum wage, even though she was the one who introduced that, by the way. Uh, and she's against universal health care, and she's against immigration reform. Nonsense. Nonsense. So these are lies. 
These are lies. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. Um, and now let me show you one of the ads that was just absolutely pounding Nina in the final month or so of this campaign. Every single piece of that is incredibly misleading, or it's a lie. So, you know, just to give one example here, the uh, voting for Biden's like eating a bowl of shit comment, in its full context, what she says is, Donald Trump is a full bowl of shit, and Joe Biden is a half bowl of shit, and sure, if you're told, would you rather eat the full bowl of shit or the half bowl of shit, of course you're going to take the half bowl over the full bowl, but wouldn't it be nicer if we didn't have to eat a bowl of shit? Completely reasonable comment, especially given the facts of Joe Biden's record, and this is what Nina Turner points out all the time. He voted for the Patriot Act, which is illegal, unconstitutional spying on all Americans. He voted for that. He voted for the Iraq War, which led to hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians dying. He voted for various outsourcing deals that gutted America's middle class, including the black population in this country got decimated by a lot of our trade deals. He supported the crime bill and wrote part of the crime bill, I believe, where, you know, it it was far too punitive. And he was a drug warrior and he locked up many young minorities who shouldn't have been locked up. It cracked down more on these victimless crimes. That's a terrible idea. He supported and maybe even wrote part of the bankruptcy bill, which made it so that students couldn't file for bankruptcy on their student loan debt, so they're just stuck with it forever. The list goes on and on of how his voting record is that of a moderate Republican. And so Nina Turner comes along and says, I don't want a full Republican or a half Republican. I don't want a 100% Republican or a diet Republican. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a Democrat? Wouldn't it be nice if we had somebody who represented the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party? That was her argument. And they take it out of context, and they spin it to try to make it seem like she's on the side of Republicans. And again, a lot of the stuff they say is just lie. Oh, she doesn't want to build on Obamacare. The definition of building on Obamacare would be to go from Obamacare to a public option to eventually Medicare for all. That's exactly what Nina Turner wants to do. But they spin it, and they twist it. And so... When that ad runs day after day after day after day after day towards the end of this campaign, all of the late breakers went to Chantel Brown. And by the way, um, with just some of the preliminary data now, so this isn't set in stone, but some of the preliminary data is that in the more white precincts, they showed up strong for Chantel Brown. It looked like the black vote was roughly split. And then in the, in the white precincts, the upper middle class precincts, they came out for Chantel Brown. So this is, yet again, the suburbs strikes back. I mean, listen, not going to sugarcoat it, y'all. It's devastating. It's devastating. So what do we take away from this? Because Nina Turner had like a 40-point lead at one point, or 30 or 40-point lead at one point, and it was only like two or three months ago that that was the case. The big takeaway, 
and this isn't going to be earth-shattering breaking news to anybody, but the big takeaway is that money wins elections. Big money wins elections. So, I mean, the number one takeaway should be, if you're not talking about campaign finance reform, you're not serious. Because if Chantel Brown didn't have all of this Republican money, big oil money, multinational corporate money, corporate Democrat money, pro-Israel money, if she didn't have all that come in at the, at the last minute in the final month or two, she would have lost by 15 or 30 points. No doubt about it. Not a question. Not a question. That's the big takeaway, is that that kind of corrupt buying of an election, it should be illegal. It should absolutely be illegal. And unfortunately, we live in a country where the Supreme Court, from the late 1970s until today, in a variety of decisions, they basically decided money equals free speech, so it is perfectly legal for corruption to happen in this country, for legalized bribery to happen in this country. And all these special interests basically bought Chantel Brown the seat. And now, by the way, Chantel Brown, when she gets to Washington, that's exactly who she's going to represent. In her, in her speech, she thanked um, you know, my Israeli brothers and sisters or something along those lines. And she was saying that particularly because of the Israeli PAC that spent the most money which bought her the seat. So now you're not going to have anybody who represents justice or peace in Israel-Palestine. You're going to have somebody who's incredibly biased and who will overlook wanton violations of international law and human rights. So, I mean, this is a real systemic problem that we're dealing with here, the issue of money in politics. So campaign finance reform needs to be top of the list. But there are other takeaways, too. Like, for example, the left needs to get serious about institutions and small money contributions. Unfortunately, what happens is when the left creates institutions, they become the professional left, and then the professional left loses touch with what they're supposed to be. Like, we just saw it happen with our revolution, where now they've rebranded as, like, pragmatic progressives or some shit like that. The fuck is that? That means we've been in Washington too long, and we no longer believe in vision. We no longer believe that better things are possible. Now we want to split the difference and do what we think is possible within the context of Washington and how politics works now. That's a terrible idea. And so that means there is no institutional left. I mean, we saw, I saw it happen with my own two eyes with the group I co-founded, Justice Democrats. Are they fighting as hard as they should be fighting? No. Do they have wins every now and then? Absolutely. We're going to get to one in a little bit. Cori Bush just delivered on the eviction moratorium. Huge credit to her. But let's not kid ourselves. The institutional left is watered down and becomes milk toast the second it becomes institutional. So what you need to do is find a way to create an institutional left that stays true to its principles and its founding. And so you need an institutional left and you need small money contributions that are serious and organized. Now, Nina Turner did okay in fundraising, but as I described, it was spread out over the entire campaign, and it turned out that was a very, very big strategic error with how they spent it. This is probably the only thing I would say that Nina Turner's people did wrong. Like, there's maybe one or two things they did wrong and everything else they did right. Um, And the fact of the matter is, what ended up happening with Chantel Brown, which I don't even think was necessarily on purpose, because nobody's paying attention to her early on, and she was a nobody, and she was polling at nothing. Uh, But what happened is they jumped in at the last minute. Hillary Clinton endorsed her. There was a slew of uh, corporatists that came out of the woodworks to support her, big money support her. And then it was very, very focused in the final stretch of the campaign where they did an ad blitz. And so all the late breakers went to Chantel Brown. 
maybe there's something to be said about the wisdom of that, even though I think it was accidental for Chantel Brown, that really you should keep your powder dry until the final stretch of any election, when it matters the most. Because towards the end, they were struggling a little bit. Nina Turner's people were struggling a lot more than Chantel Brown's people were, because they were flush with big money. Now, Nina Turner doesn't take big money, so she's at an institutional disadvantage. But maybe take some of those small-dollar donations and make sure you have it for the most important period, which is just before the election. So I think that's an incredibly important takeaway that um, not many people are going to have in response to this. And then the other point is, listen, you have to fight fire with fire. You have to. So I would implement a rule of two to one on negative ads. For every negative ad that they run against you, you run two back against them. And it's a way to incentivize a certain kind of campaign. Listen, and I'm, I'm like this in my personal life. I'm like this on the show. Everybody understands this. I'm, I'm a counterpuncher. I don't, I'm not, I don't go on the offense. I don't throw the first punch. I'm a counterpuncher. The only time I'm going to come after somebody is if, they, if I feel like they come after me and it's unfair, and then I'm going to respond. So if somebody wants to have a campaign focused on the issues, I'm 100% going to have a campaign focused on the issues. Because I think the issues, what we believe on the merits, it's strong enough on its own. So we don't need to go into the gutter. But if, you, if the other side crosses us, and if they decide to go into the gutter, okay, two can play at that game. And now I'm going to hit you twice as hard and twice as much. And so you incentivize a more pure campaign. But if they don't want to have a pure campaign and they want to get in the gutter, then I'm going to fucking beat you with that game too. So every time they run a negative ad or they lie, you run a negative ad. Now, thankfully, our negative ads can be truthful because there's enough there there that you can attack them on the truth and you win. So I would implement a rule like that. So they're running negative ads. They're smearing and lying Nina. Okay, well, two could play at that game. I'm going to run ads all over the place about how Chantel Brown just funneled $17 million to her boyfriend because she's corrupt. Uh, you know, there's a thousand things about Chantel Brown that we can point out about how she's an insider and she's playing the game for her own narcissism and careerism. And she's just another politician who's going to keep the status quo going as people are suffering. And so, again, we don't need to lie. We can tell the truth. But I would have some vicious ads that go right for the jugular. So that's another thing I would do is I would make sure uh, I fight fire with fire. I time the ads better. But listen, I don't want to be too critical of Nina Turner because here's the heartbreaking reality. She did nothing wrong. Maybe a couple minor tweaks would have helped her, but she did nothing wrong. Fact of the matter is this seat was bought by all of the late ad spending, by the millions and millions of dollars of, of a cash infusion that went to Chantel Brown to, to malign and smear and denigrate a working class hero like Nina Turner. So big money buys elections. That's the bottom line. That's the main takeaway. So even though this stings, even though this hurts, um, at least we have our answers. And at least we know that we need to adjust moving forward in some very specific ways. Um, and then also, I just want to stress this point because the initial reaction is perfectly understandable and perfectly reasonable. Everybody has this initial reaction when it happens. When you see something like this, you say, well, what the fuck is the point? Like, what the fuck is the point? Why are we wasting our time? You have to fight the urge to get nihilistic and complacent. You have to do it. Because guess what? That's exactly what they want. The establishment loves that. The establishment banks on that. They bank on what I like to call self-disenfranchisement, where people get so turned off by the system and so cynical about the system that they throw their hands up in the air and they say, fuck it, we're done here. We're like, we're done. We're not going to, 
we're not going to participate in the system anymore. Well, you just handed them the biggest gift you could ever hand them. And what you need to do is try to tap in to that gear that only, you know, a lot of the goats have, the greatest of all time have, where when the going gets tough, you're actually able to fight harder, to rededicate yourself, and to really put your nose to the grindstone and get to fucking work. That needs to be the reaction that you have. The reaction needs to be, oh, well, we're going to make for shit sure this never happens again. That has to be the reaction. Now, by the way, it is going to happen again. It absolutely is going to happen again. And, you know, there are people who run for office six, seven, eight times before they get elected. But eventually, you get elected. Cori Bush lost when she ran the first time. She may have even lost a second time. Correct me on that if I'm wrong. But eventually, she won. So you just you never give up, and you fight on, and you don't take no for an answer. I swear to God, guys, like 80% of it is just continuing to show up. 80% of it is continuing to show up. So you fight on, and you don't give up. And listen, I just want to stress this too. I don't care how you get involved, just get involved. I don't care how. If you want to work on specific single-issue advocacy, good on you. In fact, I think that's probably the, the um, most potent way to fight and the way to get the most change you can as fast as you can. If you want to be involved in organizing workers and unionization, love it. That's another great way to get immediate results is to get involved in that kind of way. If you want to work for third parties, I don't think that's the most effective approach, but it doesn't matter if I don't think it's the most effective approach. At least you're doing something. And maybe we get to a point where there's enough of a coalition with other third parties where everybody can band together and really become a force of nature, and we can push the establishment in the same way that there were outside socialists and communist groups that were able to push FDR. So even though it's not my cup of tea in the sense that I think it's probably one of the least effective ways to get involved, that doesn't matter. I still support you doing it, and I want you to do it, because getting involved in that way is better than doing nothing. And you want to build solidarity, and you want to coalition build, and however you want to get involved, you should get involved, but for the love of God, get involved. Because if you don't, well, then they're guaranteed to crush us. So, again, I know it hurts, but you have to keep everything in context and perspective. And I just want to say to everybody who, there are people who are blaming third parties for Nina's loss. I don't understand that argument at all. (laughs) Or saying that third parties are happy with Nina losing. I don't think so. I think anybody who would be with the Green Party or whatever other third party would say, of course I prefer Nina Turner to Chantel Brown. So I don't understand that take. But I also don't understand the take of third party people saying, well, see, this is why you got to give up on the Democrats. You think if Nina Turner ran as a Green or if Nina Turner ran as an Independent or if Nina Turner ran as somebody in the People's Party or some other Socialist Party or whatever, that she would have done better in the election? I don't want to be an asshole, but that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Instead of losing by five or eight or whatever the number is that she's going to end up losing by, she would have lost by like 30 or 40 if she ran in any other context. So, and listen, again, I'm not taking a shot at you. If you believe in that approach and you want to be involved in the third party stuff, by all means, God bless. I'm happy you're fighting. I'm happy you're doing something. That's way better than doing nothing. But don't kid yourself about the efficacy of doing that. If you want to be honest about fighting on that front, you have to say this is a multi-decade project at, at the minimum, at the minimum. So at least be honest about that. So, but bottom line, guys, I don't want anybody pointing fingers at anybody else in response to this. Because the fact of the matter is, even though there were minor changes that Nina could have made, 
save more of the money towards the end. Uh, go two to one for negative ads. There were little tweaks she could have made. The fact of the matter is she did almost everything she could have done. 97% of the stuff she did was totally correct. And she ran a phenomenal campaign. She even was able to get, you know, endorsements of people who are in Ohio state politics. She had groups who came in and endorsed her. She had these big uh, campaign rallies. So she did everything right. The fact of the matter is big money buys elections, and big money bought this election. It's that simple. A colossal infusion of corporate cash at the end buried Nina Turner. It was big money plus well-timed lies blanketing the airwaves. And the other thing they were able to do is pull those partisan strings. Pull those partisan strings for these old-school partisan Democrats. And um, they, if that ad talking about Nina saying voting for Biden is like eating a bowl of shit, even though it's misleading, even though it's out of context, even though they're effectively lying, um, that's one of the reasons why she lost, because it worked when you repeatedly smeared her with that over and over and over and over and over, run it in the ads, a lot of older Democrats uh, were like, she's not a good Democrat, and their partisan tribal loyalty started kicking in. And that's a problem. And that's a problem. There's two ways to approach that. Either you work on the long-term project of getting people to be less partisan. That's what I've chosen to do on this show. I want people to think for themselves and not have blind loyalty to anything or anybody. Um, so that's one way to approach this. That's a long-term project, admittedly, but that's the path I've chosen because I think it's true and I think we should fight for the truth. The other strategy that some people might want to consider is you could still hold on to all of your same policy beliefs. You could still have the exact kind of fight that we need in order to get the change that we need. And you basically change nothing about your agenda, but you just reel it in a little bit with the vituperative over-the-top criticisms that would stoke the partisan loyalty and the tribalism. So there's, there's the only two ways you can really approach that. And it's on each individual candidate to determine what they want to do. But, you know, it is what it is. And I, I feel even a little weird making this criticism or, or giving this breakdown because if they're going to lie about you anyway, it doesn't really matter, you know. And that's what they did is they lied about her. And it's not like if she said the right thing or she didn't say that, that somehow they wouldn't have come up with some bullshit to smear her with an ad. Of course they would have. So ultimately, again, it comes back to the very simple point that uh, money still buys elections. It was uh, corporate cash infusion, big money plus well-timed lies, and that buried Nina Turner. But, and she understands this too, but you can't give up the fight. Don't get nihilistic. Don't get complacent because that's exactly what they want. And you inadvertently become the establishment's best friend if you do that. If you become so cynical that you want to undercut any and all progress or any and all attempts at fighting, well, the very least you can do is just step aside and let other people who want to continue the fight continue the fight. But I highly recommend you train that instinct in yourself to, when you do lose, your immediate reaction is, let's get back to the drawing board, let's fucking figure this out, let's crack the code, let's adjust, and let's win. Let's win. Let's do it. So those are the, the words of encouragement that I have for everybody. I mean, the positive way of looking at it is that Bernie got kind of destroyed in that district, and Nina way outperformed Bernie in that district, and um, that's with the 
absolute onslaught of negative ads and smearing against her. So that's one way to look at it. Even though it feels right now like we're out in the wilderness, that's what they want you to feel. They want you to feel fractured. They want you to feel factionalized. They want you to feel like the project can never work. Big money is a powerful thing, and so it's giving you that illusion. But it's always impossible until it's done. And now that I give you the bad news, hang tight, because in an upcoming segment, I have news that's equally as good. So prepare for that. We're going to put a cherry on top of the giant bowl of shit. It's appropriate to end this segment by referencing a bowl of shit. Okay, next. Here we go, baby. Here we go. So here we go. We actually notched a gigantic victory. Cori Bush fought and Cori Bush won on the eviction moratorium. So let me give everybody the backstory of this and I'll read you a little snippet. Um, Cori Bush said, I'm going to sleep on the steps of the Capitol and I'm basically going to be homeless as long as I have to be homeless in order to bring back the federal eviction moratorium, which basically ran out. Um, There was also a Supreme Court decision that said a number of things about how, hey, you can't really do this. The president can't really do this. The CDC can't really do this on their own. Um, It needs to be an act of Congress. So Cori Bush camped out and said, I'm not leaving until somebody does something. And I think the idea was get Congress to do it. Congress didn't do it, and apparently Nancy Pelosi was adamant that it wasn't on them. Um, And... She ended up forcing Biden's hand, and Biden did act, even though originally he was saying, I don't have the authority to act. So let me read you a little bit on this. This is a really, really interesting story. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Tuesday issued a moratorium on evictions targeting areas of the country with high levels of COVID-19 transmission, extending an eviction ban for much of the nation just days after a blanket moratorium had expired. The CDC order applies to counties experiencing significant levels of virus spread, which is defined by the agency as 50 to 100 cases per 100,000 people. A congressional source said the order would likely apply to roughly 90% of the renter population in the U.S. The order will expire on October 3rd. It was issued after days of back and forth between the White House and congressional Democrats over who was responsible for extending the moratorium while scores of Americans face uncertainty about potential removal from their homes. So, Biden says, literally, I think a day before the moratorium ran out, he said, man, Congress should really do something about this. Congress came out and says, man, the CDC really should do something about this. So everybody was finger pointing at everybody else, and nobody did anything. And so then the eviction ban ran out, and now we're allowing evictions. So Cori Bush said, I'm going to sleep on the Capitol steps until somebody does something. And then that really did force Biden's hand to do this. He wasn't going to do shit. And then her sleeping out there was, she was getting a lot of press for it. By the way, rare instance where you give credit to mainstream media for actually covering her doing this. This is something they usually ignore. I guess it was such a high profile thing. Somebody made a good point. When powerful people do protests, it gets media. Uh, It's not like if you had a group of outsiders go sleep on the Capitol steps or whatever, and may not have gotten nearly as much coverage, but Cori Bush did it, it got a lot of coverage. So when powerful people do protests, it works. 
So she slept there, and that forced Biden's hand because Democrats were saying, holy shit, House Democrats are making us look stupid, and they acted on it. Which, by the way, proves the point. When you don't play nice, when you fight, when you use your power and use your outsider credibility to rally the people to an issue, to take a stand, it worked. It worked. What Cori Bush did worked. Now, just a couple caveats that are super important that some people are going to overlook here is this is not permanent. And Biden was very clear, we're doing this so that Congress has more time to act and do something that's more long-term to fix the problem. He also said, the states have over $40 billion that we already allotted to this, and they're just sitting on the money and not doing shit with it. Well, now we're giving you more time to allocate those funds properly so that everything's taken care of. And listen, Biden also said, and I, I believe him on this because of how he said it and the fact he's repeatedly said it now, he's like, I don't even know if what I'm doing here is constitutional. So um, what they did is they slightly changed the eviction ban. Instead of 100% of the country, it's now 90% of the country defined as COVID transmission over a certain amount. He's like, I don't even really know if this is constitutional, but the reason I'm doing this is because now it's going to go to court. Now it's going to go through litigation. And by the time it's through litigation, again, I'm buying more time for Congress to act and do some shit on it. So... After reading everything I've read on this, I'm convinced that Biden sincerely believes, based on the previous Supreme Court decision from June, that he doesn't have the authority to do this and the CDC doesn't have the authority to do this. But the only reason he's doing it, even though he thinks it's unconstitutional, is because at least I'll buy you more time to fix the problem, the states and Congress. So now it's on the states and now it's on Congress, and we'll see if they do anything. It's very possible we're right back in this boat on October 3rd, because they always wait till the last minute. They always do this. With the debt ceiling, they've done this a thousand times happened over and over and over again since I've been covering politics. So they'll probably wait till the last minute, but at least we got some action from somebody, even though it's temporary. Um, But you can't deny it. Cori Bush really led the charge in keeping this in the news. Um, And it really did make all the other Democrats and leadership look terrible. And so it forced their hand to do something, even though it's minimal, um, even though it's not permanent. I do think that Biden really thinks he can't do it. He's not allowed to do it. And the Supreme Court ruled he's not allowed to do it. So he's just like, all right, I guess I'll try and see what happens, but I'm just buying you more time. So massive credit to Cori Bush. Listen, you got to give credit where credit is due. You can't become so cynical and so skeptical that you literally will not take a win for a win and you won't take yes for an answer. For the love of God, this is exactly what we wanted. It couldn't have gone any better after Cori Bush started doing this protest. And I do give her most of the credit for this, keeping it in the news, keeping everybody focused, something that the media didn't turn away from, particularly because it was so sensational and she's also a powerful person. She's a congresswoman. And, and huge point here, her life mattered. Her lived experience mattered because she was homeless at one point in her life. I don't know if you guys know this. Cori Bush was homeless at one point in her life. And so she went through it. She knows how terrible it is. She knows nobody wants that. And that led her to be so passionate on this issue that she was willing to do an amazing protest, like sleep on the Capitol steps. So, listen, we have other strategic differences with them. Oftentimes, the squad lets us down. But, again, take yes for an answer. Take a win for a win. 
This was a gigantic victory. And you have to give credit where it's due. So it matters, guys. It, and this is the point I've been making all along. It absolutely matters. The more aligned with your politics you can get people in Congress, the better, the better. So there is no, the argument of like, oh, they're all the same. It's just factually wrong. Now, granted, nobody's 100% where Kyle Kalinske is on this issues, on these issues. Nobody's probably 95% or 90% where Kyle is on, on the issues. I like how I'm talking in the third person. That's so strange. Um, and certainly nobody's where I am strategically on all this stuff. But I'd rather have somebody who's 92% with me than somebody who's 74% with me. And I'd rather have somebody who's 38% in favor of the strategies I'm in favor of than somebody who's 2% in favor of the strategies I'm in favor of. It's not rocket science. It's like, it's like just math. Like, would I rather have somebody who agrees with me more or not? Obviously somebody who agrees with me more. And every now and then, you get a situation like this where we win and it's glorious and it's wonderful and she deserves the credit. So this is great. This is great. And, but now Congress has to act. Congress has to act. And the states need to allocate that money. And, of course, what I'm afraid of is Lord knows where all that money is. Is $40 billion of it going to be accounted for? Doubt it, but it matters to get people in there, have personal experience, went through some of this stuff, and then they sympathize. Uh, a great example of this, and I was tweeting about this yesterday. Amy Valella is running for Congress again. Amy Valella is one of the original Justice Democrats. The whole reason she's running, she was inspired by Nina Turner, but also her daughter passed away because we don't have a single-payer health care system, because we have a broken, corrupt, rotten health care system. Her daughter died as a result of that system. She will stop at nothing to get Medicare for all. She will do every single strategy of hardball that we advocate for on this show. She's convinced that's the best way to try to get us Medicare for all. She'll definitely do those things to try to get us Medicare for all because it's so personal to her. It's about her daughter. It's about her love for her family. She will fight, come hell or high water for that. So that stuff matters. It really does. It really does. And we just saw it with Cori Bush and the issue of homelessness. So massive credit, massive credit on this. And um, for the love of God, Congress, don't wait until late September or October to do this. Do something now. Because the second that this thing is actually, they get rid of this eviction ban, um, people are fucked in this country. I mean, you could have up to 40 million people are behind on their payments. 40 million. There's about 500,000 homeless people. 40 million are behind on their payments. You really just need to, to wipe the debt slate clean. You, got, you have to do a bailout of the regular people, of the renters. I mean, don't tell me, don't tell me we can bail out Wall Street a thousand times when they're criminals and they're crooks and they committed fraud institutionally, but we can't bail out renters whose lives were upended and ruined through no fault of their own because there was a pandemic that the government didn't adequately prepare for. Don't tell me that shit. So I would wipe their debt slate clean. I would bail them out. Um, I don't know if they're going to do that, but if they don't do that or if they don't, basically permanently do an eviction moratorium, at some point we're going to have a housing crisis the likes of which we've never seen. I mean, this might be equal to the Great Depression in terms of how devastated people will be. And even though in 2008 we had a subprime mortgage crisis and a Great Recession, this will surpass that if things eventually just expire. So buckle up. But at least we have a win right now on this issue, and the credit goes to Cori Bush. Andrew Cuomo, here we go. 
So there was an investigation released by the New York Attorney General Office, and um, they say that Andrew Cuomo is guilty of sexual harassment with at least 11 women. Um, So we're going to get into the specifics. We're going to get into the details in just a little bit. But first, I want to show you, uh, he's made this defense a number of times along the way. Um, He's basically doubling down on this defense. So he released another video responding to this just after the announcement of the findings of the investigation. And here's what Andrew Cuomo says. I've been making the same gesture in public all my life. I actually learned it from my mother and from my father. It is meant to convey warmth, nothing more. Indeed, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of photos of me using the exact same gesture. I do it with everyone, black and white, young and old, straight and LGBTQ, powerful people, friends, strangers, people who I meet on the street. After the event, the woman told the press that she took offense at the gesture. And for that, I apologize. Another woman stated that I kissed her on the forehead at our Christmas party and that I said, ciao, Bella. Now, I don't remember doing it, but I'm sure that I did. I do kiss people on the forehead. I do kiss people on the cheek. I do kiss people on the hand. I do embrace people. I do hug people, men and women. I do on occasion say, ciao, Bella. On occasion, I do slip and say, sweetheart, or darling, or honey. I do banter with people. I do tell jokes, some better than others. I am the same person in public as I am in private. You have seen me do it on TV through all my briefings and for 40 years before that. I try to put people at ease. I try to make them smile. I try to connect with them. And I try to show my appreciation and my friendship. I now understand that there are generational or cultural perspectives that, frankly, I hadn't fully appreciated. And I have learned from this. So you can see his argument is more or less, I'm Italian. What do you want me to tell you? I'm handsy. We kiss, we hug, we rub each other on the back and the shoulder, and we're like, hey, how you doing? Hey. Now, um, what you're about to see is that what he does is he uses this defense for a bunch of the accusations against him. But then there are other – he's omitting, like, the more serious allegations against him, and he doesn't address those, or when he does address those, he basically says, not true, that's a lie. So he sort of has a bunch of different responses. Some of the things he's accused of, he's like, yeah, I did it, but there's really nothing wrong with it. And, um, you know, oh, you know, people were misinterpreting what I was saying or what I was doing, and I'm just handsy, and this is just how we are, and I've always been like this, and here's a thousand pictures of me acting like this, so it's fine. So that's what he says on some of them, but then on the more serious allegations, he pivots to, that didn't happen, that's a lie. And so there were instances of him and his office, his allies in his office, whenever somebody would come out with a more serious accusation, 
they would try to do oppo research on them and try to prove that like you know they're working for trump or some shit and they people within the office told him hey don't release this report that we put together because there's really no evidence for any of this and it looks like we're just smearing people who are making the accusations because that's what we're doing and so i don't remember what happened with the report i don't know if it was released or released to only people within the office or whatever but the the retribution uh, approach he was going to take people were like hey man this makes you look guilty as hell because it did make him look guilty as hell. Now, without further ado, let's go to the findings of the New York Attorney General report. Um, this video is a little bit long, but I'm giving you all the important context here, and you're going to hear about, you know, the allegations against him in detail. Let's watch, and then we'll respond. We find that the governor on many occasions engaged in sex-based harassing conduct and conversations. The most serious was the governor's unwelcome physical contact with women, including touching intimate body parts. He engaged in this conduct with state employees, including those who didn't work in the executive chamber, as well as non-employees. One current employee, who we identify as executive assistant number one, endured repeated physical violations. On November 16, 2020, in the executive mansion, the governor hugged executive assistant number one and reached under her gloves to grab her breast. This was the culmination of a pattern of inappropriate sexual conduct, including numerous close and intimate hugs, where the governor held her so closely that her breasts were pressed against his body, and he sometimes ran his hands up and down his, her back while he did so. There were also several occasions on which the governor grabbed her butt. Executive Assistant Number One had vowed that she was going to take these violations, as she put it, to the grave. She was terrified that if she spoke out, she would lose her job. But she broke down in front of colleagues when she heard the governor on March 3rd, 2021, in his press conference claim that he had never touched anyone inappropriately. She then confided in her coworkers who saw her break down as to what had happened, and they were the ones that reported the conduct to attorneys in the executive chamber. The governor also several times inappropriately touched a state trooper assigned to the unit to protect the governor. In an elevator, while standing behind the trooper, he ran his finger from her neck down her spine and said, hey you, Another time, she was standing holding the door open for the governor. As he passed, he took his open hand and ran it across her stomach from her belly button to where she, the hip where she keeps her gun. She told us that she felt completely violated to have the governor touch her, as she put it, between her chest and her privates. The governor also inappropriately touched women who were attending work-related events in which the governor made remarks. At one event in September 2019, while having his picture taken with an employee of a state entity, the governor grabbed this young woman's butt. At another event in May of 2017, the governor pressed and ran his fingers across the chest of a woman while reading the name of her company whose logo was on her chest. The governor also engaged in a widespread pattern of subjecting women to unwanted hugs and kisses and touching them in ways that made them uncomfortable. Conduct that is not just old-fashioned affectionate behavior, as he and some of his staff members would have it, but unlawful sex-based harassment. In addition to the physical conduct, our investigation found that the governor regularly made comments to staff members and state employees that were offensive and gender-based. For example, the governor crossed the line many times when speaking with Charlotte Bennett, a briefer and executive assistant, uh, particularly in spring of 2020. When she confided in the governor that she had been sexually assaulted in college, he asked her for the details of her assault. When talking about potential girlfriends, he said he thought he could date women as young as 22, knowing that Ms. Bennett was 25 at the time. He asked her whether she had ever been with older men. 
He told her that he was lonely and wanted to be touched. He asked her if she was monogamous and what she thought about monogamy. He speculated on how her history as a sexual assault survivor might affect her romantic life. He told her that she looked like Daisy Duke. He suggested that she get a tattoo she was contemplating on her butt and asked her if she had any piercings anywhere other than her ears. Miss Bennett texted to a friend on the day where many of these comments were made that she was upset and confused and that she was shaking. Another example is the governor's comments to the state trooper, the same trooper he touched on the stomach and back. After the governor had become single, he asked the trooper how old she was. When she responded she was in her late 20s, he said, that's too old for him. He then asked her how much of an age difference he thought he could have between him and a girlfriend and have the public still accept it. She suggested it might be a good idea to stick with women at least as old as your daughters. She then tried to deflect the conversation by asking the governor what he was looking for in a girlfriend. He responded that he was looking for somebody who could handle pain. Another time, when the governor found out that the trooper was engaged, he asked her why she'd want to get married because, among other things, your sex drive goes down. As detailed in the report, employees recounted a pattern of similarly offensive comments and conversations, such as the governor repeatedly asking executive assistant number one whether she would cheat on her husband, saying to her, if you were single, the things I would do to you, telling her that she looked great for her age, which was early 30s, and for her mother, calling her and coworker Alyssa McGrath mingle-mongs, comparing Lindsay Boylan to a more attractive version of one of his ex-girlfriends and to actresses. Women also described to us having the governor seek them out, stare intently at them, look them up and down, or gaze at their chest or butt. In sum, the governor routinely interacted with women in ways that focused on their gender, sometimes in an explicitly sexualized manner, in ways that women found deeply humiliating and offensive. So now every single member of the New York delegation in Congress is saying he should resign. Um, Joe Biden is saying he should resign. Other Democrats who had previously bit their tongue are now coming out and saying he should resign. Um, And still defiant, Cuomo says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, But they might start uh, impeachment. I don't know if it's impeachment hearings or the impeachment procedure or whatever the case is in New York State. And at least as of this moment, the reporting is that it appears like they have the votes to impeach him. Um, I, I ultimately, I don't know what's going to happen because I remember the whole Ralph Northam situation where homeboy was caught doing blackface like 67 times. And he was like, I'm good. I'm not going anywhere. And then eventually people were like, all right, you're not going anywhere. What do you want me to say? So I, I don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, I think honestly, the thing that Trump taught the political world is when the going gets tough, puff your chest out and say, fuck off. I'm not going anywhere. And eventually shit dies down. And that may be the case now, but the only thing that can really prevent that is if in New York they have the numbers for impeachment, the reporting is that they do, but who knows if, you know, when all is said and done and all the stuff, all, everything settles behind the scenes, if they'll still have enough votes for it. But as of right now, he has zero, zero political allies. Everybody is, uh, is saying they're done with him. Um, now, Biden actually made a good point about this. He was doing a press conference on it, and he basically said that, listen, I'm sure there are plenty of examples of things that he did that were old, old-fashioned, old affectionate behavior in the same way that Biden does that same shit. But the findings of the Attorney General report in New York are that it wasn't all that. It wasn't all that. And you could hear based on some of those stories that, yeah, it wasn't all that. So, again, to run through it, 
He hugged an executive assistant and reached under her blouse to grab her breast. Right there. That's not, like, that's not old-fashioned affectionate behavior. If you're reaching under clothing to grab some titty and you don't have approval for that, you don't have consent for that, this isn't, you know, you're not in a relationship and the mood is sort of frisky, then I, I don't see how he can, you know, say, argue out of that one. Now, my guess is his point is, no, that's one of the ones where they're just lying about it. Okay, but again, it is sort of convenient that some of the things he's like, that ah, old-fashioned and affectionate behavior, the ones where you caught me like on tape. And then other times it's like, uh, oh, no, that, that didn't happen at all. Um, the governor grabs a bunch of people's asses. Again, I don't, that's not old-fashioned affectionate behavior. I do think you can make a case that like, you know, the, the grabbing of the face or like the kissing on the cheek, I think you can make a case that that's old-fashioned, old-fashioned affectionate behavior. Now, it is true, though, that today you probably shouldn't do that uh, because the culture has, is changing and evolving, and so it's not as okay to do it today as it was back then. But if it is that, we should call it that. But, again, when you talk about grabbing asses, it's just not that. That's not what we're talking about here. That's obviously sexual in nature. Like, he, he knew what he was doing. He knew he was being pervy the entire fucking time, but he kept doing it ran his finger from the neck down the spine to, of a state trooper and said, hey, you, more uh, explanations of grabbing tits and ass. Um, they make crystal clear that the New York Attorney General report, quote, not just old-fashioned affectionate behavior. Um, now, this one, this is a curious one because there's one where um, a woman who was sexually assaulted went to work in Cuomo's office because she was sexually assaulted and she saw that their office is doing good policy work on sexual assault, which I know is massively ironic. Um, and he basically asked her for the details of her assault. Now, he says, I did this because I, have, I think he said he has a daughter who was sexually assaulted, and they've gone to therapy over it, and he's tried to help her. And, you know, it's, he felt powerless, even though he's the governor of New York, but he wanted to do anything he could to help his daughter. And he learned from the experience with his daughter, and so he was trying to help this woman. Uh, that's what he claims. Obviously, she claims, no, he was using the, the vulnerability uh, of the fact that I was sexually assaulted to whatever, play the role of the good guy, but also get in and ask inappropriate questions and see what he could get out of it. I, that's my guess is that's what she claims, although she's one of the anonymous ones, and so we don't have many more details beyond what we've just heard publicly. Um, then there's stuff that's just run-of-the-mill creepiness. He's 63 years old. He's talking about he could date women as young as 22. He was lonely and, and wanted to be touched. That's, I think that's another thing that sort of crosses a line for sure. If you're the governor and you're the boss and everybody around you technically works for you, you can't, like, muse about how lonely you are and how you want to be touched. You can't do it. That, that's, like, inherently sort of threatening because of the power dynamic that we're dealing with here. Now, if he was out on his own and, uh, you know, he was at a bar or whatever and he was flirting with somebody who was flirting back and he said something like that, it's a different context. But when you're the boss and you're in your office and you're talking about I'm lonely and want to be touched, that clearly crosses a line. Conversations about would you cheat on your husband, that's run-of-the-mill creepiness. Uh, if you were single, the things I'd do to you. Again, if, if this stuff is unwanted, and very clearly it was, and he wasn't, 
reciprocal to the, the signals that were being sent his way and he still plows forward, that is a problem. That is a problem. So um, that's the breakdown. Again, I don't know what's going to happen. Ralph Northam survived it. And I should point out the obvious now, guys. Donald J. Trump has, what, over a dozen um, claims against him or over 20 claims against him, and some of them are as serious as rape. Uh, it, things are all across the spectrum in terms of how bad it is the stuff that Trump has been accused of. So let's be clear about that. Let's also be clear about Biden. Biden has the uh, Tara Reid accusation against him. Now, obviously, with all of these claims, you have to vet them on their individual merit to determine what's true and what's not. And with a lot of them, we'll never know the truth. But it is sort of interesting how there does appear to be just standards all over the place for everybody. There is no one consistent standard. And here we have a case with Cuomo where um, he's basically trying to puff his chest out and say, I'm going to go by the same standard as Donald J. Trump. I'm going to go by the same standard as Joe Biden. And I'm going to do this Ralph Northam thing and be like, fuck y'all, I'm not going anywhere. And I didn't even do anything wrong. And so, again, if there's anything that Trump taught the political world, it's that. And we'll see what ends up happening. But they may have the votes to impeach in, in New York. We shall see. But this report is crystal clear. Um, it was very thorough and very detailed. And... There is plenty of damning stuff in there. Will that be enough to take him down? Time will tell. But, I mean, you guys know this already because you're my audience, but the thing that really should have taken this fucking guy down is the, the COVID order to send old people back to nursing homes when they've tested positive. That's what should have taken him down because that's like murder or at the very least manslaughter. It's a horrendous public health decision that killed thousands of people probably. That's crazy. Now, the reason why that didn't take him down, though, and you all know this, is you had, you had Republican senators copying and pasting the language in that and putting it into their own bills because they agreed with it, because they don't want any liability for any of the nursing homes. They're doing the liability protections for all these businesses so they don't get sued when it comes to COVID. So uh, you also had five, six, seven other governors copying the stuff from Cuomo. So if he goes down, they all go down on that. So everybody overlooks like the manslaughter shit. So that's what should have brought him down. The other thing that should have brought him down is he starts an anti-corruption commission. Then the anti-corruption commission starts looking into him and his cronies because they're corrupt. And then he shuts the whole thing down because they looked into him. That should have taken him down. But it is amazing how even at this late date, very serious crimes, very serious crimes are um, sort of barely make a dent. And uh, it has to be more in the realm of the sexual stuff and the personal stuff to even have a prayer of getting accountability. But I guess you could say, you know, it's a little bit sort of like getting Al Capone on tax evasion. Like ultimately, as long as you're getting them on something, it's better than nothing. So we'll see what happens with this. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Vosh and Charlie Kirk. That was fun. Stay right there, y'all. We, we will be right back. I promise.
Welcome back to the show, y'all. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's have some fun. We got Vosh and uh, Charlie Kirk. They had a, a wee bit of a debate last, a little wee bit of a debate. And uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. So let's kick it off with um, the portion on vaccines. Here we go. Hold on. Let me set this up for YouTube. Vosh and Charlie Kirk had a debate. Uh, They had it on Tim Pool's show. Uh, It was really interesting. It was interesting. It was fun. Got a couple portions of it that I want to show you here. Um, I had fun debating Charlie Kirk back in 2019 at Politicon. I know that uh, Vosh broke that down a little bit. And uh, it went well. I like it. I went back and watched some portions of it as well. And um, it's sort of exactly like I thought it was. Charlie talks too much um, and loses the crowd, the crowd at times. And my main theme of the debate was basically to point out how I'm more than willing to critique people who are on my side if I think they actually did something wrong, and I do that a number of times. But uh, one of the themes with Charlie is that I found he, under no circumstance, would he critique Donald Trump. No matter what the criticism was, he would immediately play defense. And so, you know, I was not too difficult to point out for even maybe the most stubborn viewers that this guy's kind of acting like a partisan hack. Now, he's a nice dude off, you know, off stage, nice guy, um, totally got along with him just fine. Uh, But when he was on stage and he was making those arguments and it wasn't too hard to poke holes in the arguments. And uh, it looks like Vosh found the same thing here. So they're going to get into it on vaccines and it doesn't go well for Charlie. Yeah, look, I'm not getting the vaccine, so I'm part of the 100 million people that are unvaccinated, and it's an experimental vaccine. The FDA and CDC have said that in January. It's questionably effective. Lindsey Graham just got uh, down with COVID. You had a vessel, a ship in the United Kingdom, 100% vaccinated ship that came down with COVID. It's more, it's more like a treatment than a vaccine. I'll leave that conversation to Dr. Brett Weinstein and the people that really understand um, how that works. But yeah, this is medical apartheid. This is, this is trying to create a two-tiered system where if you don't make the proper medical decisions, you're not able to go to Broadway shows or go into restaurants, even when the efficacy of this vaccine is questionable at best. We see that in Israel, an 85% vaccinated country that's about to lock down again. And most of the new cases are from vaccinated patients, not unvaccinated patients in Israel. Well, a couple of points on this. First of all, it's experimental in the sense that there was an expedited process for its release, but there have been full and extensive studies taken on the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines. The reason why the FDA study hasn't been finished, the reason why it hasn't been fully vetted, isn't because they're looking for long-term health effects. It's because they're determining the extent to which it protects you over a long period of time. Ergo, the fact of the matter is, by all available data, this is undeniably much safer to get the vaccine. I mean, by orders of magnitude. Let me ask you a question. Well, wait, a couple things, because you said a few things there. Um, there are some instances where areas have more people being infected if they're already vaccinated. But if you take a look at, like, this is like data mining. If you take a look at the broader statistics, especially here in America, the number of people who have gotten breakthrough cases is something like 0.003% of people who have been vaccinated. You can take a look at the numbers. Where is this new wave exploding? It's in the unvaccinated. In spite of the fact that fewer and fewer people are remaining unvaccinated, the vaccinated stay relatively healthy and not only do they get infected way less often, they also suffer far fewer severe symptoms. Their hospitalization rates have plummeted, and their deaths are incredibly low compared to people who are unvaccinated. This is by all means an effective vaccine. What's your opinion of Johnson & Johnson, the FDA saying that it might cause a rare nerve disease? Uh, yeah, that, that's something that, first of all, when you take a look at that, you have to recognize that 
even if that was the case, which the FDA said it is. Right. Well, they're looking into it, of course. They, 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 they issued an official warning mm -hmm. that it could issue a rare nerve disease. That's a big deal. It could issue, of course. They're looking into it. And that is something to look into and to be concerned about. What's your opinion of VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System? Hold on. Where's well, 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 first, I'm just, I'm just curious. Let's do the Gillian-Bear syndrome. Yeah, I think you want yeah to so of course. Stuff like that can happen. Now, even if that claim is the case, it would remain the fact that unless the extent of that potential nerve damage is just apocalyptically severe, that the effects of getting COVID would still be far, far worse than the potential side effects of that vaccine. However, if you were to say, let's say worst case, you know, Johnson & Johnson, it's not viable, that gets pulled, we see what the consequences are, but does it really speak against the greater viability of the vaccines? I got Pfizer, for example. We're talking hundreds of millions of people who have either been protected against the vaccine in part, or if they get it, or sorry, against the virus, or if they get it, their effects, their symptoms are much, much, much more. So I just want to just kind of just playing to the irony here that I'm the one criticizing the pharmaceutical companies and you're the ones that are, you're the one defending. I just think that's, that's a, a, I think it's delicious. Well, wait, hold on. That's, that's an extremely well, dishonest talking well, point. Well, well, you're peddling the Pfizer vaccine. You're I'm so affected. So wait, hold on. Wait, I'm the one saying, hold on. Maybe AstraZeneca, Majority, right. Johnson & Johnson, and Pfizer. This is, let's, 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 let's talk about the points he's made. And, no, I'm just, I'm just enjoying the irony. Well, it's, well, the thing is, it's not really like irony if you understand the issue at hand. See, my praise doesn't go to the pharmaceutical companies or their CEOs. It goes to the tireless workers who spend months and months and months developing these vaccines. Who's getting rich on this? Well, hold on. Have I at any point praised the distribution of profiteering? So who do you think gets rich from the vaccine so mandate? Is it the so workers or the Pfizer CEO? Well, nobody's talking about who gets rich. This is a toothless critique. Hold on. This is a toothless critique that you could apply to literally anything that you don't like. Everything in this country is manufactured to the profit. No, but you don't mandate it, and so you can't go to restaurants if you don't get one of yeah, the four so, major well, 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 so Wait, wait. I just want to say, if that's your criticism, that's one of many. Then you should. So if that's the criticism you want to focus on, I'm in favor of nationalizing the pharmaceutical industry. I'm willing to take it that far. But whether or not that's on the table, and I can't just make that happen, when we're talking strictly about the effectiveness of the vaccine, it seems so. Let's like, not a praise of the capitalist industry behind no, it. No, I was just enjoying the irony. That's it's not irony. irony. Charlie went for the cheap shot there, and it didn't work out. I mean, listen, it's so obvious to point this out, but Vosh is of the opinion, like any reasonable person, that the evidence and the data shows the vaccine is phenomenally effective and it's the case he would also nationalize big pharma by the way based that's a position that i've advocated for and i don't know if i've ever seen anybody else advocate for it who's you know some sort of um less content creator so that's awesome i'm glad they said that um and also he obviously would be in favor of you know raising taxes on um, the CEOs of these companies and uh, I mean he's in favor of basically making them worker owned co-ops democratic companies so you can both say I'm going to criticize the structure of the corporations within this capitalist context and also the vaccines work it's not like it, I mean that's such a simple concept it's amazing it has to even be explained but it's like saying, yeah, antibiotics work, and also the profiteering corporations that make the antibiotics, the nature of those companies should be changed. And it should either be democratically owned, so it should be worker-owned co-ops. Um, you should have maybe worker-to-CEO pay ratio rules that you can't go above 10 to 1 or whatever, pick the arbitrary line that you want, or you need to steeply raise taxes on the CEOs, the executive of, uh, executives of these companies. I mean, again, that's so simple, but he tries, to, he tries to conflate everything, and Charlie Kirk does, and make it like, well, if you're saying the vaccine works, well, then you're obviously 
generally speaking, a shill for big pharma and corporations. I mean, you just don't go for the cheap shot like that because that cheap shot is incredibly silly. You know, um, whether it's antibiotics, whether it's anti-anxiety pills, whether it's the various therapeutic antiviral treatments that we have for um, a variety of illnesses, whether it's um, some of the other medical devices that are sold and used under this current capitalist context, all of those things can work while the structure of the system needs deep reform. Like both of those things can be true at the same time. Again, I find that obvious. It's amazing it needs to be said. But when you're in the debate about vaccines and you're sort of getting schooled, it's easier to just shift the conversation to, well, I guess you love Big Pharma then, bro. I guess you just love Big Pharma and you're a shill for Big Pharma and the CEOs. Okay, so, um, but let's get into the conversation about vaccines because that's even more interesting to me. The fact of the matter is, guys, this is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's what all the numbers are showing. How many times have we seen headlines that basically say, like, 99.9% of the people who died in the hospital in whatever state it was, Maryland or some shit, um, were unvaccinated? So if you're vaccinated, you're not dying from the virus. It's just not happening. It's when you look at the original um, studies, the original trials on all of the vaccines, Here's an amazing fact that a lot of you guys might not know. Again, this is one of those things where I feel like it should be common knowledge, but it's just not because the media doesn't do a great job getting this stuff out there. But in the original trials for all of the vaccines, for Pfizer, for Moderna, for AstraZeneca, for Johnson & Johnson, and there's even others, if you got the vaccine in the trials, not a single person who got the vaccine was hospitalized or died. Not a single person who got the vaccine was hospitalized or died. And so they have these bullshit numbers that the media cites all the time of how effective the vaccines are. And for example, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the big number was, oh, it's only 66% effective. What they're not telling you is that that number is total bullshit because that just means 66% effective against getting the virus. What they don't tell you is that If you got the vaccine and then you get the virus, you're overwhelmingly likely to be asymptomatic, which means the vaccine is working. Have the sniffles, which means the vaccine is working. Or even have light to moderate symptoms, which means the vaccine is working. So the most important number is how much does it protect against hospitalization and death? And even at this late date with all the new variants, There's nothing that's less effective than like 95%. So I just want everybody to focus on the number that matters. Hospitalizations and death, so severe illness and death. And all of the vaccines are well over 90% effective against preventing that. So they just work. Now, Charlie Kirk brings up um, Lindsey Graham there and says Lindsey Graham was vaccinated and Lindsey Graham had, you know, a, a breakthrough case. So in other words, he was vaccinated and he got COVID. Why don't you say the rest of what Lindsey Graham said? Lindsey Graham said, I'm absolutely positive that the reason why my symptoms are so mild and why I'm getting away with this 
is because I got the vaccine. So in other words, he could have been one of those people who, if he didn't get the vaccine and he got the illness, he would have been violently sick, maybe severely ill, maybe in the hospital, maybe he would have died. Maybe he would have died. But since he got the vaccine, he's like, look, I, don't, my, I feel fine. That's what he said. I feel fine. Now, I don't know. Does he have the sniffles now? Does he have like a cold? Maybe. But he was like, I'm, I know the vaccine helped me. I know the vaccine helped me. So weird. He doesn't tell you that part of what Lindsey Graham said, but he does say, oh, he has a, a, a breakthrough case. So again, there's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. What the data in the U.S. shows is that everybody who's being hospitalized, everybody who's dying is unvaccinated. Um, now to get to the, cause this is the other thing they do, take the anecdotal cases or the fringe cases and try to use that like Charlie Kirk described there, uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine causes a rare nerve disease. The Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine causes a rare nerve disease. So first of all, the, it's hilarious that none of them who are bringing this up can even pronounce the name of the illness, which should tell you something about their level of understanding of it. It's pronounced Guillain-Barre. That's how it's pronounced. And every time they say it, it's like they come up with, you know, a different way of saying it. Um, you know how many cases there's been of Guillain-Barre after people have gotten that vaccine? 100 cases. You know how many people have gotten that vaccine? 12 million. You do the math on that. You do the math on that. To say it, it causes this, that is a massive overstatement. This is the same thing that they do with deaths. They say, oh, the people who've gotten the vaccine, thousands have died. The vaccine's been given to like over 170 million people. Some people are just going to die out of 170 million. They're just going to die, and it's going to have nothing to do with the vaccine. If you vaccinate somebody who's 92 years old and they die a month later, maybe they're dying because they're 92 fucking years old. It's got nothing to do with the vaccine. This is basic causation correlation shit. How do you not understand this? They attribute all those deaths to the vaccine as if the vaccine is doing it. So Guillain-Barre, 100 people out of 12 million. Now, the other thing is the blood clots that they talked about, where they temporarily froze the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Guys, 15 cases of the blood clots. 15 cases out of 12 million shots. Birth control is like one in 10,000 or something like that for blood clots. And that's still on the market perfectly legal, wasn't frozen. So this is way less likely, and they temporarily uh, froze it, but they brought it back. It was the right thing to bring it back. It probably wasn't even the right thing to freeze it in the first place. Um, so just to put this in perspective for you, and as Bosch pointed this out correctly in the moment, even if I grant you the thing about Guillain-Barre, even if I grant you the thing about blood clots, that's 100 cases and 15 cases. That's a total of um, 115. One person died from Guillain-Barre. Um, seven died from the blood clots. So a total of eight deaths, eight deaths. So even if I grant you everything about the vaccine, oh, my God, it's so terrible. Oh, my God, it might have these side effects in 0.0001% of cases. How many people died? What's the seven-day average? On August 3rd in America, 414 deaths. The seven-day average on August 3rd, 414 deaths. So you do the math on that. How long has the vaccine been out? 12 million people have taken it. Eight deaths, maybe from side effects. Maybe not even from the side effects, maybe from side effects. Eight deaths over the course of months and months and months. One week, 414 deaths with COVID. You do the math on which thing is more dangerous. This is the point, guys. It isn't a debate. This isn't a debate, and it's really annoying to me when people start debating shit that's not debatable. 
you have to follow the science. You have to follow the evidence. Now, yes, there are plenty of people like Dr. Fauci got a million things wrong. And when he got shit wrong, it's because he wasn't following the science. He was fucking lying or he was bullshitting or he was just incorrect. That doesn't mean science is wrong. I mean, Dr. Fauci wasn't doing well with the science, like when he said math don't work, which he admitted was a lie later on because he said, oh, I was just saying that because I wanted the frontline workers to keep the masks and we thought that maybe people would get all the masks and the frontline workers wouldn't have access to them. So that's why I said that. So you lied. So you lied. Don't, you have to follow the science, follow the evidence, follow the research, but you don't have to take individual people and, and turn them into demigods or idolize them. No, you think for yourself and do it based on the research. Polio was eradicated. Smallpox was eradicated. There's a number of vaccines that have saved countless lives. This vaccine is one of the few things I would give Trump credit for, for basically rushing this thing. And all the evidence to this point shows it's working and it's working phenomenally well. And that goes for all of them. They're different vaccines. The mRNA vaccine is the Pfizer and the Moderna. Then the AstraZeneca is, um, is similar to the Johnson & Johnson. The Johnson & Johnson is done with a human adenovirus, which is like a cold virus that they made to mimic COVID-19. And so that's why that works. And in the case of AstraZeneca, I believe it's, a, it's actually a chimpanzee adenovirus, which does the same thing. So it's, they work, man. They work. And the numbers show that. The numbers prove that over and over and over. I can't tell you how many things we've gone over on this show that uh, lay that out. So, I mean, this is, this is just Vosh running circles around Charlie Kirk. And my sympathy goes out to Vosh here for this reason. Again, he, might, he probably feels the same way as I do about this. I hate debating things that I don't think are debatable. It just, it's really annoying. And he's got to fend off all these crazy, uh, you know, viewpoints on the vaccine and um it's tough it's tough to fight against misinformation that's that thick and deep and charlie kirk clearly has been uh going down a rabbit hole on this stuff and he's as wrong as wrong can be okay next do one more with Vosh. Charlie Kirk and Vosh debated libertarian socialism and freedom on Tim Pool's show. Take a look. Now, it's funny. I feel like our roles are being reversed a little bit here. Isn't that interesting? The common good isn't something I appeal to. For me, the value I want to maximize. No, I just appeal to the good. The, sure, the good. two different things. Um, is freedom. That's what I care about most, and that's what libertarian socialism is about. There are many types of freedoms, positive and negative. If I might indulge very briefly, like, is a man thrown to a, a, a lawless desert without food, water, or clothing free? Really asking. So, probably no. I agree. He's free to die. But that's an extreme example, sure. not applicable in modern, wealthy America. No, or any Western nation. But it's a philosophical base. It's also a Rousseauian argument. Man's born free, and he you know, spends the rest of his life in chains. Right. It's just anti-commercial in nature. Well, no, but it's, it's a base philosophical argument, because it's true, they're lawless. There's nothing preventing him from doing anything in that environment, but he has no ability to act on but his life. He does have consciousness. Well, sure. So that's a natural rights doctrine that I will defend. Well, I, I mean, I like consciousness, too. The only point that I'm getting at is when it comes to people's freedom and the ability for people to protect their freedom, this is what I care about. It's what Marx cared about. If you actually read what he wrote, and I, I have. I've read Don's Capital. I've read the manifesto. Guess what? He was right about some things. Then you know, but not everything. He didn't and talk really wrong about equality. <laughs> he didn't write on equality. He wrote on freedom because he believed that society was a very complex interlocking network of systems that in some ways liberated men and in other ways enslaved them. But do you know what he got wrong? He got wrong that sometimes people can be free for other devices that they are not able to regulate. They can be free not from alcoholism, drug addiction, some sort of 
any other sort of perverse addiction. The idea of freedom is very libertarian. But I agree with that, though. No, I know you do. The greatest society... I say that... Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just the greatest society is one where a man is born, and there are as few things as possible preventing him from doing whatever he wants for the rest of his life. I totally disagree. So long as, of course, he doesn't deprive others of the ability to do the same. So I think that's a miserable society. Freedom? No, that's not freedom. That's licentiousness or degeneracy. That's chaos. What is degeneracy? I like men. How about pedophilia? Okay. Well, I'll you said whatever he wants. Is that is as long as they don't, freedom vote? As long as they don't infringe on the rights of others. I'm sure you could believe I would believe well, it. So, then, so there are limits on freedom is what you're saying. It's not this Wild West campaign. Yeah, so where do you get those limits from? Well, obviously, you would probably have to have a pretty complex interlocking legal system to determine what we agree upon as like a reasonable limits we can place on people's behavior. We have that now to an extent. No, I know. So like pedophilia, bad. That right. would be a bad thing. Okay, kidnapping. That would be a bad thing. Rape. That would be a bad thing. Why do you think those things are bad? Uh, I think they're bad because you're stripping other people of the ability to do that, which they will. With all those examples, you're inflicting harm on a person. How about dealing drugs? Uh, I think that dealing drugs is a person's freedom, as is taking over. What about dealing drugs to kids? Uh, Dealing drugs to kids? Uh, I think I would disagree with that, probably because I think there's something exceptional about addictive substances and children. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think a lot of stuff would apply to children, specifically contract law. Kids can't sign contracts. So there's nothing wrong with that. You I'm getting at? Eventually, you do agree that a conservative framework is necessary. I don't think that's a conservative framework, because there are other things I care about that you would always disagree with, like collective ownership of the means of production. Yeah, I totally disagree. Which I think private property and freedom are linked together. Which would give workers the most freedom possible. We've definitely gone along. A libertarian socialist? is like a meat-eater vegan. <laughs> um, libertarianism was actually a left-leaning ideology. It was co-opted in the early, 20, early 20th centuries by capitalists, but actually before that, libertarianism was exclusively in the purview of socialists, and I believe that they believed that freedom is the greatest human good as long as it doesn't infringe upon others, and that the best way to achieve that freedom is through democracy. We have political democracy, flawed as it is. Economic democracy is something we should also strive for. I'll say. So Voss did a great job there, uh, breaking down his view of libertarian socialism, breaking down his conception of freedom and what it would mean. Um, There's a part earlier on in the conversation that you didn't see there where Charlie Kirk basically says, oh, actually, you may have seen it at the very beginning, uh, where Charlie says, um, I, I want to appeal to the good or the common good. So that's, he says that's what he bases his philosophy and his ideology on. And uh, Voss pushes back at one point and basically says, I mean, every authoritarian system known to man makes that argument that they're, uh, you know, they're the ones who are pushing for the common good. And so you can get otherwise normal people to do horrendous things if they truly believe and have conceptualized that what they're doing is for the common good. Even if those things are, you know, phenomenologically, obviously not good, if you can convince people that, no, this is for the greater good, for the common good, then they can do hideous, atrocious, horrendous things. So um, it is sort of, you know, the the go-to of authoritarians to make that argument. Um, And the other issue is Charlie Kirk saying he believes in the common good. It's like, okay, but the common good as you, Charlie Kirk, define it. And he has some ideas that, you know, are just sort of extreme and it's very easy to argue against the ideas and say, this isn't the common good. You know, for example, he's, he comes out in this podcast against gay marriage. I mean, I'm sure he's always been against gay marriage, but he reiterated his opposition to gay marriage in this. Um, I, there's a, it's hard to make the case that, that you know, you're helping the common good by not letting two consenting adults who aren't hurting anybody else express their love in the most intimate way and create a lasting bond it just it seems like even though you say you're fighting for the common good 
you're not fighting for the common good or the good. It's the good as you have defined it, and you are incredibly socially, culturally, religiously biased in your specific, you know, time and place and mindset. Like, you just happened to be born in America. He just happened to be born in, I'm going to guess, the 1980s. And all of the cultural biases and social biases and religious biases inform what you think is, quote, unquote, the common good or the good. So it just seems sort of ill thought out. Now, Vosh, on the other hand, he says the value he cares most about is freedom. Um, And then he makes a phenomenal point of, would you really call somebody who's dropped in the middle of the desert with nothing free? And even Charlie Kirk acknowledges, no, that person is not free in any real meaningful sense. And so the point that Vosh is sort of fleshing out there is that we have all these different conceptions of what freedom is. There's negative freedom or negative liberty and positive freedom, positive liberty. And so in some ways you have a freedom from the government oppressing you. Um, like, you know, you have free speech. They can't lock you up because for you speaking your mind. That's one example of like a negative freedom. Uh, I have a right for the government not to bust down my door with no evidence and no warrant and do a search of everything. That would be a negative freedom or negative liberty. Uh, positive freedom would be like you have a right to health care, for example. Um, and what Bosch is sort of laying out there is that that person is not free in any real meaningful sense, uh, the person who's left in the desert with nothing. And he goes on to point out that really the only way you can, in any meaningful sense, talk about human beings being free is if they're also not oppressed. So their basic needs are met, that's a given, but they're also not oppressed by their boss, their corporation, their business, where they work, in the same way that they're not supposed to be oppressed by the government. See, this is what libertarians and conservatives like to do, is they like to harp away on the oppression and the tyranny of the government, and the government taking away their rights. But they completely overlook the corporate sector doing the exact same thing. And Charlie Kirk even weakens his own position there by saying, I think private property and freedom are linked together. Private property and freedom are linked together. If you are a wealthy, let's say you're born into wealth, born into wealth. You inherited a business from your parents. And then you have 40 people working for you, let's say. The 40 people who are working for you, are they really free in any meaningful sense? If where they spend most of their time during the week, they get there and they have to do what you say, when you say it, with very few, if not no, guardrails to protect them. I mean, I guess you say, okay, they can't, you can't discriminate against ethnicity or religion, and they can't tell you to do sexual favors. There's very limited rules, but there's some. But they're really not in any meaningful sense free if when they get to the workplace, there's a rigid hierarchy and structure that actually mimics what we would call a political dictatorship, a political tyranny, an authoritarian system. So... It's funny that these libertarians and conservatives can see the oppression of having that rigid hierarchy when it comes to the state. And it's, you know, don't tread on me. Get the government out of my life. But when it comes to corporations oppressing you, being tyrannical, being dictatorial, taking away your right to really do what you want to do when you want to do it in any meaningful sense, somehow that is not taking away your rights. 
that is not infringing on your freedom, when it most definitely is infringing on your freedom. Um, and then Charlie Kirk points out what Bosch is describing, he says, is not freedom, it's degeneracy, it's chaos. Don't agree with that. And the example he gives is pedophilia. Now, Bosch accurately swats that away and says, listen, the reason why that's wrong, among many reasons, is that you are infringing on the rights of that kid to not be taken advantage of. So you're taking away the kid's rights. And that's why he's very clear in describing your rights stop where the infringing on other people's rights begins. And he says that repeatedly. Even given that, Charlie Kirk tries to blur those lines and make it seem like, no, the freedom you're advocating for is actually um, total degeneracy and chaos. And then they go to the example of drug use. And it does say a lot about how ultimately authoritarian the belief system of Charlie Kirk is that he thinks it's a trump card, no pun intended using Trump, but he thinks it's a trump card to talk about drugs like, like it's not somebody's freedom, right? Now, they bring up kids. Again, I think Bosch is right to swap that aside because when it comes to kids, um, they aren't fully formed physically. So there is no such thing as really making their own decision in any meaningful sense. So you can make a distinction between you know, a kid and an adult. Now, the line is, is blurry, and you could have a debate about where the line is, but there clearly is a reason to restrict it for younger people and don't restrict it for older people. But this notion that allowing people to put in their body what they want, what they want to put in their body if they're not hurting anybody else, they're grown adult, the notion that that's just degeneracy and that's just chaos, and it does speak to the fact that Charlie Kirk has a bleak view of human nature. And he even points this out in other parts of the podcast where – he basically says, I think people are, like, disgusting and brutish and bad at their core. And I, I would say, now speaking for me now, not Vosh, I would say I, I just fundamentally disagree with that. And the plethora of the evidence points to the fact that we are both things. Human beings are both, you know, altruistic and humanistic and collectivist and community-driven. We're that, and we are also selfish and greedy and and brutish, and all the negative things. Both of those things are in our nature. But he likes to fight to focus on the negative, and he thinks we're just the negative by our nature. And so that's why giving people maximum freedom would actually be degeneracy and chaos and terrible. Well, I have to say, I don't agree with Charlie Kirk, and I think that worldview is phenomenally unappealing to independent viewers of this podcast. They'll be like, Really? So, in other words, even though he claims to be anti-authoritarian and anti-oppression and for rights and don't tread on me, he flips on that and changes it because he thinks if you do give people maximum freedom, then it's just degeneracy and chaos. And so you have to curtail that. Curtail that how? Well, you have to curtail that with how you govern. And so, in a weird way, he's for both the corporate oppression of people and he's for the government oppression of people all the while pretending he's really not for either one. So I think Vosh does a great job there. Um, obviously, I tend to align more with his view on human nature. I tend to align more with his view on um, freedom and what constitutes real freedom. And I think this case needs to be made more often, that, yes, we should believe in this negative conception of freedom and liberty, where you have freedom from oppression and the government getting too involved in your life and all that. But also, we need to make the case that that's not just the government that can take away your freedom. It's also the workplace, which is why Bosch wants more democracy in the workplace. Um, 
And also, we should care about uh, democracy. Oh, wait, I already made that point. Democracy in the workplace. Fuck, there was one other point that I was really close, that I was super important and I'm missing it. Hold on. Where is it? Uh, democracy in the workplace, positive freedom, negative freedom. Oh, positive freedom is also important, and people don't talk about that much in the U.S. So in other words, you don't just have a freedom from certain things, oppression. You have freedom to certain things, the bare minimums. Because if you don't have the bare minimums met when we can have the bare minimums met, then you're not free in any meaningful sense. Are you really free if you're going to go bankrupt for medical bills? Are you really free if you're going to die because you don't have access to health care? Are you really free if you have, uh, you know, student loan debt that you're never going to pay off until you're 78 years old? Are you really free if you don't have food, if you don't have a roof over your head? So there's not just negative freedoms. There's also positive freedoms. So what the left needs to do is make the case, we believe in both kinds of freedom. You have a freedom from oppression, whether it's from the government or from your boss and your corporate overlords, and you have a freedom to certain things to actually give you a a, a bare minimum shot at making it in life and being happy and healthy and fruitful and have meaning and purpose. So, um, again, Vosh does a great job there. And, I mean, this really does get to the core of just some fundamental differences between the conservative worldview and uh, the left worldview. And, um, yeah, I think Charlie's – he has positions on this stuff. I just sort of – disagree, even going all the way back to his premises. Okay. Next. Story came out political the other day. Be prepared to get angry. So, they say, House Dem campaign chief warns the majority at risk Without message reboot, quote, we're not trying to hide this, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's executive director said. So, number of things here. They say, oh, it's just a messaging problem. Well, it is both a messaging problem and a substantive problem, as we're going to talk about. So, let me just give you a little snippet from this article here. They say, during a closed-door lunch last week with some of his most vulnerable incumbents, House Democrat Democrats' campaign chief delivered a blunt warning. If the midterms were held now, they would lose the majority. Democrats would lose the majority if the midterms were held now. Uh, Representative Sean Patrick Maloney, following that bleak forecast, which was confirmed by multiple people familiar with the conversation, with new polling that showed Democrats falling behind Republicans by a half dozen points on a generic ballot in the battleground district. Maloney advised the party to course correct ahead of 2022 by doing more to promote President Joe Biden's agenda. Okay, okay, let's, let's dissect this. They fell behind Republicans by six points on a generic ballot. That's a huge downturn. Now understand, the Democrats would need to win by like four, five, or more in order to just keep the numbers they have now because of the fucking gerrymandering, which makes it like impossible for them to pick up seats or gain seats, and they're not doing anything about that. It's not just that they, you know, they can't be down six. They can't even fucking tie or win by one or two. They've got to win by, like, six, seven, eight in order to, like, be competitive. So they're just way off base here. And, again, Maloney advised the party to course correct ahead of 2022 by doing more to promote Joe Biden's agenda. 
let's, let's dissect that a little bit. For example, in this poll we learned, voters disapproved of Democrats' handling of the economy by a margin of 41 to 55. 41 to 55. So they're way underwater with the economy. They say, well, Biden is polling better than us, so we just all need to run as Biden Democrats, and that's how we win. What they don't tell you is Biden's numbers are plummeting, too. Biden has dropped significantly since May. So he's plummeting, and their brilliant idea is, you know, latch on to the guy who's also plummeting like we are. Why would you do that? The president is always more popular than Congress. So this is no different, and this is a lackluster. His approval rating is around 50%. That's not that great. But that's their genius idea. So the thing that's driving me absolutely crazy is, guys, they don't understand the most basic political concepts, the most basic ones. So if you are an elected Democrat, what do you have to do in order to win, in order to, to have a strong performance? There's two things. Number one, promote the good things that you did. Promote the good things that you did relentlessly until everybody knows it. So if you were one of these elected Democrats, you shouldn't go a single interview without bringing up the stimulus checks that you did or the child tax credit, which is phenomenal policy that's helping so many people, or the Biden did the $15 an hour minimum wage for federal contractors and for federal workers and for tipped federal workers. So now there's no exception to the minimum wage when it comes to the federal government. Everybody gets paid at least $15 an hour. Bring that up. Bring up the good things. Or the second thing you could do is do more good things. Do more good things. This is like they, they pass some watered-down bare minimum shit, and then they don't brag about it and pretend like it's, it's the best thing ever, which, by the way, those things are good, but they're just bare minimums. They don't brag about it, and then they don't, they're not talking about like, well, fuck, we should probably do some more good shit for people so that we become popular again. Why would you not cut another stimulus check, for example? Why would you not try to do universal basic income? Why would Joe Biden not break out that executive order pen and legalize marijuana or decriminalize marijuana or eliminate student loan debt or eliminate $50,000 worth of student loan debt? You either have to brag about the good shit you did, which they're not doing. Nobody even, talk, nobody even brings up the child tax credit in interviews if they're Democrats. They don't say anything. They don't brag about the good stuff, and they don't fight for more good stuff. All their, like Even with this negotiation with um, in the infrastructure bill, nobody's out there repeatedly harping away on what's in the partisan reconciliation bill. And by the way, even without them promoting it, these pieces of legislation are massively popular, which shows they, they just have good ideas in them, like universal pre-K and, and, and uh, child care and what is it? Was it child? Was it elder care? Oh, uh, two years free community college. They got all these good ideas in them. They're not even promoting it, and the ideas are popular, but they're not connecting the dots for people. Say, we're in favor of this. They're against this. We're going to fight for this. You guys love this shit. We're not going to stop until we get it done. These are phenomenal ideas. Let me explain to you why it's absolutely necessary that we have universal pre-K. Let me explain to you why the government has to work for regular people. It, it is absolutely infuriating how badly they're handling this. And by the way, again, they're only talking about it as a messaging problem. It's not just a messaging problem. It's also, you have to do more shit for people problem. You're not doing enough. And even the good shit you did, you don't talk about it. You don't brag about it. You don't connect the dots. And their genius idea is only going to hurt them further. Just say you're Biden Democrats. 
there is no, like, they, they're so insane, they think there's a cult of personality around Biden. People voted for Biden because his name was not Donald Trump. People tolerate Joe Biden. Everybody can tell he's half asleep in every press conference he does. And the most inspirational shit you can come up with is, I'm with the zombie. That's the most inspirational shit you can come up with. Nothing about the child tax credit. Nothing about the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. Nothing about the, the um, stimulus checks. Nothing about the $15 minimum wage for federal workers and contractors and how many people's lives were helped as a result of that. Nothing about any of that. Nothing about fighting for a UBI or fighting for the, the reconciliation bill, which has a bunch of phenomenal stuff in it, expanding Medicare. No, nothing about any of that. It's unbelievable. Final point is this. This is how pathetic the Democrats are. I've never seen incompetence to this level. Now, understand, the corporate Democrats are corrupt. And so on the one hand, they don't want to do a lot of these good things. But also, put that aside. Because even if you don't want to do those things, they do want to win, but they can't even figure out basic shit in order to win. They're so incompetent. They are so immensely incompetent. They're now losing to a Republican Party that has only been yelping and bitching and moaning about cancel culture and wokeness the entire time Biden's been in office. That's all they do. That's all they do. Oh my God, Dr. Seuss this, Dr. Seuss that, Mr. Potato Head this, Mr. Potato Head that. Uh, Simone Biles, get your ass back in there. Fuck anxiety or depression or ADHD. I don't care if you have the twisties and you're going to break your fucking neck. Get in there because America. All they've been doing is talking about nonsense, cultural social issues bullshit with zero connection to policy, and they're up six points on the Democrats. They're up six points on the party that did the stimulus check and did the child tax credit and did the $15 an hour minimum wage for federal workers and federal contractors. How stupid are you? Anybody who materially improves people's lives lives has a built-in advantage a built-in advantage, and you can't fucking win. You can't fucking do it. You can't hold the lead. You can't do anything right. You don't brag about the good shit you did, and you don't fight for more new good shit. So now you're being beaten by people who haven't said a goddamn word about unions or the economy or helping regular people or ending the wars. You're losing to people who haven't said a substantive thing in fucking months, in months, their prime achievement under the last president was a colossal tax cut bill for the rich and for corporations. How are you losing to them? How are you that bad? Because this is what happens when you don't brag about the good shit you did and you don't fight for more good shit. This is what happens. They have no message. They have no anything. They're just still coasting on, uh, I guess we're not Donald Trump, so we're with Biden. Is he awake? Wake him up. He looks like he's asleep. Can he talk today? Did you give him his medicine? I'm with that guy. That's the least inspirational thing ever. And now I'm at the point where I'm leaning much more in favor of, I think the Democrats are going to get routed in these midterms. Between not doing election reform and all the fucking gerrymandering, you won't talk about the good things you did, and you won't fight for more good things and connect the dots for people. I mean, with this... This infrastructure bill that we're working on, the partisan one has asset recycling and privatization, so it's not a great bill. But the partisan reconciliation bill is awesome, and nobody's fucking talking about it. Nobody's hammering away at it. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. You're down six points to a bunch of fucking idiots who can't shut up about cultural garbage. This is exactly like in 2004 when George W. Bush was running around the country. They ran, they ran an entire election while the Iraq war is going on, while it's going horribly. They ran an election on, uh, man... Gays getting married is gross, isn't it? 
Christianity is awesome, isn't it? And they won. They focused on all cultural garbage, and the Democrats were so ineffectual and had no message at all that the Republicans won with a dumb culture war message. How do you let somebody doing the culture war override economic material well-being? How do you, you have to be the most incompetent people on the planet, and they fucking are, and they are. So they've got to get their head out of their ass. This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. How are you six points down to a party that's done nothing but obstruct good things and talk about fucking Mr. Potato Head? Pathetic, embarrassing, fire every single strategist and get to fucking work on doing the right thing. Talk about the good shit you did and fight for more good shit. And talk about what's in the human infrastructure bill. Brag about it. Everybody needs to know that you're in favor of free college, two years free community college. You absolutely should talk about that. Everybody should know you're in favor of universal pre-K. These are things that help regular people. But you don't talk about it. You'll just say, I don't know. I'm with the zombie Biden guy. Well, good luck in 2020. You're going to lose to people that have a collective IQ of like 32. All right, next. So Tim Pool went on Fox News, and um, the host got really weird here. On Fox News, like the ultimate corporate media network, number one in corporate media news, this guy's going to decry corporate news. You're a corporate host. You can't decry corporate news. That's you, dog. That's you. Let's watch. Tim, you are someone who has been at the front end of media innovation over the past several years. You've created really an alternate way for people to get some of this information that is never really talked about within the dominant forces of corporate media. It seems to me that you and people like you have a critical role in shifting this conversation to what really matters. What are some of the ways that people who may not have your platform but who want to try to shift that narrative, as you say, how can they get involved? How can they share information that cuts across and actually highlights the things that matter as opposed to going on with this corporate narrative? Well, it's hard because we've got the issue of big tech censorship. We see cancel culture that many on the left deny, but there are regular people with small accounts trying to express themselves. They'll say something like, learn to code and get banned on Twitter. <laughs> but I really do think you need, you need a critical mass of people stepping up and expressing themselves, and I understand it's very difficult. You know, for people who have families and children, they're trying to just get through this to make sure their kids will have a better future, will be able to have food to eat and have a job to support their families. But I really do believe that if everybody who opposed, you know, the wokeness, the hypocrisy from, from you know, our, our leaders, if they did speak up and they were brave, then I think we would see a dramatic and immediate change. All right, so there's a lot to say here from the top. I mean, the coast literally argues corporate media isn't talking about what matters Again, dude, that's you. You're corporate media. And you're right. You're not talking about what matters, especially on Fox News. You're not talking about what matters. But it's just so funny that, like, they do this weird thing where they posture like they're anti-establishment. When you are the heart of the establishment, you're in the belly of the beast. That's where you are. Um, And he says, hey, listen, corporate media isn't talking about what matters. How do we get, you know, regular people involved to talk about what matters? And Temple's response is basically, well, look, we got cancel culture. We got wokeness. And uh, we have, it's hard because there's big tech censorship. Uh, now, on the big tech censorship thing, that's true, but it's not just against the right. This, that's the argument they like to make is that it's only against the right. 
nonsense. Chapo Trap House was banned from Reddit. There's been a number of lefty accounts that have been banned under the guise of like, oh, they're Russian disinformation agents or whatever, and it's total nonsense. They're not that number of, uh, you know, big Antifa accounts were banned. So you see this, you see this on the left, you see this on the right, you see this with voices that the establishment deems extreme. Uh, they'll go after them and they'll take them down. So it's not just a right-wing thing, but of course the implication is that it is just a right-wing thing because that's the implication that they always make. Um, so there is a concern there with big tech censorship. I'm also concerned about it. But then he, that, this is the point that stuck with me, though, because Tim says, well, listen, it's difficult to talk about these things that matter and focus on it because people, you know, are just regular people and they have families and they want to look after their kids and they're just trying to have a job and get food to eat and, like, you know, take care of the basics. And I listen to that and I think, Tim, that's right, but the, the political party that Fox News stands for is not fucking helping those people at all, at all, even a little bit. Nobody's looking to take after, you know, take care of the basic needs of regular working Americans on Fox News. The entire agenda they support is the opposite of that. Now, listen, the Democrats also don't really care too much about looking after regular people, but you do have to give credit where it's due, and they did do the child tax credit, and the child tax credit has helped a large number of people. So... Again, credit where it's due. Biden did sign an executive order to raise the minimum wage for federal workers and federal contractors, even tipped federal contractors, where it's $50 an hour or more across the board. So again, you've got to give credit where it's due. Now, having said that, neither party is really looking out for regular people in any serious, meaningful sense where you can rely on their support. But for the love of God, Fox News is the worst on this front. What has the Republican Party and Fox News been talking about nonstop for months now? It's all, it's all social issues. It's all cancel culture. It's whether it's Mr. Potato Head or Dr. Seuss or Simone Biles needs to shut the fuck up and get in there and do some gymnastic shit or vaccines or whatever. It's always they are talking about whatever they can talk about to distract from the fact that they're not in favor of universal basic income for people when they desperately need it, that they're not in favor of universal health care for people when they desperately need it in the middle of a pandemic, that they're not in favor of abolishing student loan debt or having four years free college. They're not in favor of any of these things. The things that that party's in favor of are more endless war, more Wall Street bailouts, and more tax cuts for the rich. That's what Fox News advocates for. That's what the politicians who they support advocate for. Now, they don't talk about those things because they'd rather distract you by talking about 24-7 wokeness and cancel culture and all that stuff. Now, I'm not saying I don't have issues with wokeness and cancel culture. I do. Oftentimes, I think that stuff goes way too far. But if somebody's focusing on it 24-7, 365, there is a reason for that. They'd rather talk about that than talk about the child tax credit, than talk about universal basic income or universal health care or free college or abolishing student loan debt or legalizing marijuana or any of these things. So it's just you can't be on Fox News in the belly of the corporate beast and decry corporate media, and you can't say, man, People, you know, people just have families and, and children. They're trying to have a, just get a job and, and eat food and take care of their basic needs and stuff. And yeah, so let's stop posturing as if Fox News and the Republican Party are advocates for these people, are working on behalf of these people, are taking care of these people. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. They're using culture war stuff to dupe people into supporting a political and economic agenda that screws themselves screws themselves. 
So I guess that's the part that really got under my skin. The bashing corporate media on corporate media and the idea that, like, we, people, I get it's hard, but people got to focus on serious issues. Yeah, that's not what they ever do on Fox. That's not what the Republicans ever do. The Democrats barely ever do it. So why are we, why are we pretending like this is not the reality? So there you have it. Um, Tim Pool on Fox News, and what's that guy's name? Ben Dominic or something like that, the host? Something like that, but a lot to pick apart there. All right, next. So we have a fight on our hands, and it's an interesting fight. One of the biggest unions in America is taking on Amazon. Amazon, that marvel of modern shipping that successfully defeated unionization pushes for years, might finally be facing a worthy challenger. The Teamsters will build the types of worker and community power necessary to take on one of the most powerful corporations in the world and win. That's right, one of the country's oldest, largest, and most powerful unions is coming for Amazon's warehouses. In June, representatives of the Teamsters' 1.4 million members voted overwhelmingly to focus the union's energy on what they're calling the Amazon Project. They're planning to get workers unionized by organizing strikes, education drives, training programs, and generally being a big pain in Amazon's ass. And sure, Amazon busted a huge union push in Bessemer, Alabama earlier this year. But that push was led by the retail, wholesale, and department store union. The Teamsters have much more leverage because they also represent workers in trucking, package delivery, freight trains, and ports, all things that Amazon needs to do business. Plus, the Teamsters are legends at this stuff. The union took on UPS Freight in the 90s. 185,000 workers went on strike for two weeks and got UPS to raise wages and get more job security. And the Teamsters have been having that type of success since it started organizing workers well over 100 years ago. Its original members were horse drivers, grave haulers, and beer wagon drivers. So, logistics workers. So there is no other union in the United States that is as embedded in the same industries that Amazon works in as the Teamsters. And so, in this sense, they are unmatched in terms of, in, in the country, in terms of um, you know, their ability to organize Amazon. So the Teamsters has 1.4 million members in the United States and like 500 local unions that are everywhere. And so they basically have the power to sort of bring Amazon to its knees with like a massive coordinated work stoppage across the country. And I think that Amazon is aware of that. The Teamsters are tagging into this fight because of what they say are Amazon's terrible labor practices. Like how delivery drivers say they've had to pee in bottles because finding a bathroom would put them behind on Amazon's work requirements, which then puts them at risk of getting in trouble or fired. Amazon denies this. And Amazon's so powerful that workers at other companies say their working conditions are being impacted too, as shipping and delivery companies like UPS try to keep up with Amazon. Teamster members at UPS say they're being asked to work longer days, on weekends, and on holidays, and to hit quotas that one union member called astronomical, all things that the Teamsters fought against back in the 90s. So Amazon workers unionizing would benefit them, too. Amazon didn't respond to our request for comment. 
And while the Teamsters big Amazon project hasn't gone into full swing yet, the union is already making headway with Amazon workers in California and Iowa. And this clash of titans is just getting started. Oh, for the love of God, I hope it works. I hope it works. I hope it works. Now, I should let everybody know that there was a NLRB official, I think, who came out and said, we're recommending a new vote in Bessemer, Alabama on unionization because Amazon just flat out broke the law repeatedly and um, basically rigged the election. So you have government officials now saying we should have a new election in Bessemer, Alabama as a result of that. So, you know, we've got these little glimmers of hope every now and then. And the Teamsters, I didn't know all that about the Teamsters, about just how much clout they have and how much power they have and how if any union has a chance taking on Amazon, it is the Teamsters. I didn't know any of this, but that makes me really happy. Hearing those facts makes me really, really happy. So, um, I mean, listen, we saw the stories. We know that they're pissing in bottles, the workers. They're sometimes shitting in bags. We know that they're, you know, they're worked to the bone. They, the hours are insane. Um, the only reason they even raise the pay to $15 an hour is because of Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders um, coming up with the Stop Bezos Act which they, Amazon was afraid would catch on in a bipartisan fashion because the way the bill was uh, framed, it also appealed to conservatives. I don't remember exactly how they did it, but I think it had something to do with um, if you pay them more money, if you pay a $15 minimum wage, that fundamentally cuts the social safety net, reduces the social safety net because the workers no longer have to rely on the government to make ends meet because the business, Amazon, would be paying more so they can make ends meet just from their job. And so I forget the exact framing of the bill, but the bill was intelligently uh, created in a way where the top officials at Amazon thought, this might catch on and this might pass. And so they're like, okay, 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 we'll pay $15 an hour. But still, even with that, we we noticed the same thing at um, the Frito-Lay factory where they pay $15 an hour, but guess what? People were working 84-hour weeks or something absolutely absurd. There was no climate control in the factories. I think Amazon has a similar thing where it can either be scorching hot or freezing cold and people get overworked and they have to go to the hospital. Some people fucking die. You have all these problems. You have all these issues. And so you need unionization. You need unionization. You need better labor laws, stricter labor laws, And um, if Amazon was unionized, oh, that would make a huge difference. The workers would have way more power. They'd be treated way better. And you wouldn't have to hear stories about people pissing in bottles or shitting in bags. You wouldn't have to hear it because it wouldn't exist. So solidarity of these workers, and I hope that the Teamsters pull it off. And um, if that is the case, it would change a lot of lives for the better. So I wish them the best of luck. Okay, next. Here we go, y'all. Fox elitists railed against the eviction ban. This is really something to see here. This is, I would consider this a festival of idiocy that you're about to watch. So they're going to come out against the eviction moratorium, and they're also going to take some horrendously stupid shots at the left. Watch. I, I would like to 
about this. Does President Biden think the Senate should extend it? You know, not all landlords are Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. And yet there are people who all of a sudden are going to owe all the back rent. But here's the kicker of all of this. Remember when states could not get unemployment money out and it was just so frustrating and it was like, wait, why are we, the federal taxpayer is offering more, so we are willing to pay all of this, and then the states can't get the money to anybody, and they're having to go to food banks, and they're not able to pay their electricity bill, and the stress of all of that through no fault of their own is happening. Now, in this case, the federal taxpayer gives $49.6 billion to the states, and they can't figure out how to get this money out. They sat on it. In, in New York, $2.7 billion. And then the Democrats turned around and said, actually, the landlords are to blame. The mm-hmm. landlords, you're the ones who mm-hmm. should, should apply for this money. I think this is absolute incompetence at the federal level. They, I think that they actually, I think Nancy Pelosi knows that this moratorium needs to end. But here, hear me out, just one last thing. If they pass a moratorium for another four to five months, where does that put you? Christmas. Do you think anybody's going to want to have eviction notices going out at Christmas? And then the moratorium never ends. And then what happens? So, yes, it's my favorite story for yeah, lots yeah. of different reasons. <laughs> so, Richard. And I didn't even get to the thing about sleeping on the steps of the Capitol. Oh, I guess the worst. Talk about it. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, you go. No, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Richard, do you want to talk about uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush sleeping on the steps of the Capitol when we have millions of job openings and restaurants are having a hard time getting workers back to work and rent uh, landlords are having a hard time, you know, paying mortgages that they actually owe to the bank as well? <laughs> AOC says I need to pay for someone else's rent because the pandemic's still a threat? No, I don't, and no, it's not. We helped a lot of American people with what? Free money, free rent for nearly a year when they needed it. Well, they don't need it anymore, and now they can help themselves. What did Joe Biden say? This was the, a worker's job market? Go work. This is, the, uh, this is the reason why you can't even compromise with temporary solutions, because even if you give a temporary solution to a lefty, they're going to make it permanent. There's no such thing as temporary, whether it was mail-in ballots, you know, or it's the moratorium. You give them, and they go, oh, yeah, sure, and we'll get back to normal. No, they won't. Moratorium? They don't even know what that means. Um, And we don't actually, I have to say, we don't talk about her at all. We talk about the stories, and we're always very, very respectful. I think she's incredibly talented, but she hasn't lived enough to be that arrogant in her wisdom. And that is an issue with, with, with the problem with the Democratic Party, is that their hard, loony left are young and ignorant in terms of wisdom. They don't know how the world works. You need, and they're not going to listen to me. And I've said this before. We've divided. We've raised the flags. We've called out violence, cancel culture, the mob mentality. But we do it. It doesn't land with the Democrats. So it, it, you need the remaining sensible, i.e., older Democrats to take responsibility, you know, and pretend you didn't hear it from us. You know, make it your idea, and we'll salute you. But we need, we need, it's time for old people in the Democratic Party to take their party back from the young and loony. The boomers. Yeah. Well, that is without a doubt the dumbest thing I've ever heard and the most counterfactual thing I've ever heard. Who the fuck do you think is running the party? Nancy Pelosi's like 1,000 years old. Joe Biden's like 2,000 years old. Chuck Schumer, he's old as hell, too. It's nothing but old, the old guard in charge of the Democratic Party. Of course it's the old guard in charge of the Democratic Party. What are you talking about? And this, oh, God, Greg Gussell gets under my skin more than anybody else. He says, talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she hasn't lived, lived enough to be arrogant in her wisdom. And then he says, they don't know how the world works. This smug assumption, which, by the way, 
is a dodge because it's showing that Greg doesn't want to talk about the issue and make an argument on the issue, namely the eviction moratorium. Doesn't want to talk about that. Doesn't want to talk about that. So he just does a character attack. Oh, you haven't lived long enough to be arrogant in your wisdom, and you don't know how the world works. So you dodge, but guess what, Greg? I pointed this out a million times. They act like our ideas have never been tried, never been tested, and haven't been proven to work. They have been tried, they have been tested, and they have been proven to work. But all these ideas that he thinks are so radical and extreme and arrogant, and you don't know how the world works, all these ideas, work in Scandinavia. The social democracies have all these ideas that we talk about, or 90% of these ideas that we talk about. Now, obviously, the eviction moratorium is different. It's COVID-related specifically, but what does AOC advocate for? Universal health care, you know, free college, um, higher wages. These things are all popular with the American people, and they're all policies that have been proven to work in a variety of different countries. So when he says you don't know how the world works, no, maybe you don't know how anything outside of America works. You just assume we have to have a system that's based on exploitation and low wages and a scam healthcare system and a scam college system. God, and this, it's clear projection. Because Greg Gutfeld is the most arrogant person I've ever seen in my life. And he's attacking AOC as if AOC is being arrogant. And, okay, so now let's get to the other stuff because there's a lot of stuff there. I love the argument, well, what about the landlords? Yeah, what about the landlords? So we did the over $40 billion that we sent out to keep people in their homes and that money has not been allocated efficiently and effectively. Um, and so we almost have enough money to totally wipe the debt slate clean because it's $53 billion that renters owe. And it's like 47 or something billion that we have that still can be dispersed to get to these people. So, but their concern is for the landlords. Their concern is not for the people, the up to 40 million people who are behind on their rent and can get evicted, and this is through no fault of their own. They're not just lazy. They didn't just wake up one day and say, well, now I'm lazy, and I don't want to do shit. No, it was the pandemic that totally disrupted the entire economy and the market, and people got fired, and they didn't do anything wrong. And, but the concern is always for the landlords. Well, guess what? If that money's allocated, they're going to be all right. They're going to get bailed out. It's the, uh, you know, your concern should be for the regular people who might lose their homes and might lose a roof over their head. We might have a homelessness crisis, the likes of which we've never seen. Now, they also say, they also blame the federal government for the incompetence on this. Guys, I have a million criticisms of the federal government, but it's very clear in every article that I've read on this that the 40-plus billion dollars that's sitting there is in control. The various states have the money, and the localities have the money, and the cities have the money, and they're the ones who need to distribute it. And they haven't done it in a decent way. And so this isn't something you can blame the federal government for. You've got to blame the state and local governments for that. But no, they'd rather blame Biden than Democrats, so they... Uh, pawn her off to the federal government. Then I love, Dana Prino just takes the mask off there because she's like, well, if they pass a moratorium, another moratorium, then it's going to leave us around Christmas for the next one. Nobody's going to want to evict people around Christmas, so then the moratorium never ends. She says that like it's a bad thing. Who is going to openly campaign on this idea of, I love mass evictions. I love kicking people out on the street when... Nothing they did was wrong, and a pandemic totally wrecked the economy. Isn't that the way it should be? Shouldn't we have evictions of millions of people? How do you make that argument with a straight face? She actually said, the moratorium never ends then, as if it's a bad thing. That'd be wonderful if the moratorium never ends. It'd be great. It'd be phenomenal. We got all the bailouts in the world. 
for uh, Wall Street, but we don't have bailouts for working people who are struggling to get by. I mean, it says everything about what's broken with our system. Um, and then I love the idiot Jesse Waters who chimes in and he's like, get a job, bro. Go work, bro. Again, Jesse, do you think that everybody who lost their job when the pandemic hit, they're just lazy? Just like in 08 when the recession hit. Do you think everybody woke up one day and they're just like, I don't want to work anymore. I quit and I'm going to sit on my couch all day and get paid for it. Is that what people did in the Great Recession? Is that what people did during the COVID, the COVID crash? Is that what people did? People now, are they, are they sitting back waiting for better job opportunities? You know what? Maybe the tiniest percentage, maybe 2% of the country is that they got some stimulus money, they got some unemployment money, and now they're waiting for a job that they actually like and they can afford to do it. That'd be great. I, more power to those people. What you want to do is force them back into a miserable job where they're depressed and they're anxiety-ridden and they don't want to fucking be there and they'd rather die. That's what you want to do, Jesse Waters. So go get a job. By the way, people have, you know, they owe a lot of money. Even if you get a job, most jobs are not going to pay enough for you could, you know, make up for however many months you're behind on rent. People owe a shitload of money that they simply don't have. It's just get a job. Is that how it works? Is that just going to take care of all of it? God, he's just so dumb. He's got that mindset of, like, he can't even think two moves ahead, never mind, like, four or five. Like, wow, get a job. Everything will be taken care of. So easy for you to say making millions of dollars in a comfortable uh, air-conditioned studio. And then final point is, back to Gutfeld, he says, this is the reason why you can't even compromise with temporary solutions, because the left is going to make it permanent, to which I say, good. Now, that's not the case. I wish that was more of the case. It's not the case. Really wish it was the case. But whenever we do make it permanent, those uh, programs are the most popular in the country. Medicare, Social Security, phenomenally popular. And so now if we're talking about, I don't know, the stimulus checks or the child tax credit, I would love it. I'd love it if it was a UBI. I'd love it if we had the child tax credit um, in perpetuity. And talk about the eviction moratorium. Again, I'd love that. I would absolutely love that. Because, again, this is no fault of their own. People hit hard times. And it just shows their total lack of empathy. They're a bunch of millionaires sitting in a comfy studio pontificating and giving their opinions. They're adding nothing of value to the system. But other people who actually work for a living, they want to see them kicked out on the street. There you have it. Don't ever fall for this bullshit that they're like, you know, we're work, looking out for working people and regular people. No, you're a bunch of elitist pricks, and that's obvious. Okay, next. So everybody's going to see here um, how infuriating it is that our government is broken. This is such a clear example of just how decrepit everything is. New, this is from Robinson Meyer. New, Congress is considering deep cuts to Biden's $30 billion plan to prevent future pandemics. It's part of an effort to slim down the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, quote, that we have to fight for this $30 billion defies belief, an advocate tells me. So in an effort to appease Manchin and to appease Cinema and maybe the seven or eight Democrats who would want to slim this bill down, um, they're saying, all right, one of the things we could uh, get rid of is the $30 billion to prevent future pandemics. I mean, this just goes to show you, this isn't about um, 
this isn't about prioritizing things rationally. This isn't about the good of the people. This isn't about crafting a bill that makes sense. This is about a bunch of corporate Democrats who are basically Republicans. Uh, they want to cut this bill down because they're afraid of the attack as of big spending, even though that spending would help the American people. So they'd rather slim the bill down, cut it down, make it one trillion or two, and take away a bunch of good things just so they can say, my, I didn't, I didn't mess up the deficit. Oh, gosh, golly, Papa, please vote for me in my state. And they'd even be willing to take out pandemic preparedness. There's a joke. There's a joke. Our, our government is a mess. I mean, it, I can't say enough negative stuff about it. On the one hand, it, the entire Republican Party, all the Republican uh, elected officials are corrupt in representing Wall Street and the military-industrial complex and big oil and every special interest group you can imagine. And the Democrats are corrupt as well. Um, you have a handful of ones that are, are not, but the overwhelming majority of them are corrupt. And even if they make a decision all the time they're legislating based on that corruption and they're paying back their donors who got them in office, but then... They're also just dumb. Like, these people are also just stupid. They're not bright. And so they don't, like, they didn't think this was a big deal. They thought, they probably didn't even think anybody would write an article on it. They're just like, you know, cut the pandemic preparedness. Shouldn't that be the last fucking thing you'd ever want to cut at a time like this where we just learned that shit is real and it's terrifying and 615,000 Americans are dead and, what is it, 4 million people around the world are dead and... You don't want to prioritize this? I mean, what more can you say? I don't, I don't know, like, what more can you say about this other than the system is corrupt and rotten and disgusting and broken, and they don't even want good legislation. They don't even want good legislation. They want legislation that serves their donors, and they want legislation that allows them to virtue signal for what they think would help them in their states and their districts. And by the way, they're also wrong about that shit. Like, Manchin thinks he's being a high-minded genius on $15 minimum wage by being against it and supporting, like, a $12 minimum wage. Polls show West Virginians support a $15 minimum wage. So, again, in that instance, it comes back to corruption. He'd rather, rather represent the donors. This isn't like, well, I'm just a moderate when I do this stuff. You're a fucking idiot if you want to cut the pandemic preparedness in the middle of a horrendous pandemic, which proves that we can have another one at any fucking time. Oh, my God. $30 billion pandemic plan preparedness. They're looking to cut it. They're looking to fucking cut it. Moderate Democrats in the House or Senate Democrats. Moderate Democrats. We really got to come up with new terms because the way we discuss them now is far too kind. All right, next. So this is um, 
more great work from More Perfect Union. They're going to talk about how Uber and Lyft are robbing their workers. Take a look. In Massachusetts, gig companies are trying to legalize a system that robs workers of basic rights. No minimum wage, paid leave, or ability to unionize in an effort to pad their own pockets. Because the income is so low, it's destroyed my life. Even though the state has some of the strongest labor protections in the country, gig companies skirt the law by treating their workers as contractors instead of employees. Being a first-time independent contractor, the expenses were very heavy. It took almost 50% of everything I made just to pay my expenses. After working an entire week and then calculating my expenses, I would go home with literally maybe three to four hundred dollars after working, uh, you know, 40 to 50 hours a week. The working conditions are not great. As a woman, I've been sexually harassed. Um, I've had to deal with racist passengers. We get no benefits whatsoever. No medical family leave. No vacation time, no sick pay, no fuel reimbursement, no toll reimbursements, pretty much everything. No health insurance, nothing. And now those companies are getting ready to spend millions on a ballot initiative that will make this misclassification permanent. There's a new battle brewing over the gig economy here in Massachusetts. If this all sounds familiar, that's because it's happened before. Last year, gig companies spent $210 million getting Proposition 22 passed in California, making it the most expensive ballot initiative in history. Despite their claims that Prop 22 would prevent price increases, every single company that backed the initiative has raised their prices since it passed. At the same time, the gig companies actually decreased their rates for drivers. The minimum wage promised by Prop 22 only applies to what the companies call engaged time, from the time they've accepted a job until they've completed it. This means companies don't pay workers for approximately one-third of the time they're on the apps, either waiting for new customers or returning from long-distance trips, an effective wage of $10.45 before deducting expenses resulting in $5.64. That's only two times. Drivers are getting less money, and passengers are paying more. So everything you just said that would happen if Prop 22 didn't pass is happening now. Now they're bringing their playbook to Massachusetts. The companies have filed to put their anti-worker bill on the ballot, but they won't be able to pass it without a fight. We want to be able to have paid sick leave. We want to be able to have workers' comp. We want to be able to have unemployment insurance. We want to be able to have those basic protections that all other workers in a common wealth of Massachusetts are able to have. These companies need to follow the law. They need to respect the worker. They need to pay a living wage. They are trying to Uberize our economy, and that's what we are trying to prevent. This isn't just about your Uber driver, your DoorDash driver, the person that picks up your food and delivers your groceries to your house. If they can get away with this in Massachusetts, it'll be coming to a state near you. So this is quite the scam if you think about it. It's basically a good way to think about it is like this is anti-unionization. It's the polar opposite of unionizing. Unionizing is when you collectively bargain, you band together with your brothers and sisters who are also workers, and you all, whatever one does, you all do. So you could strike and demand more, and then they have to negotiate with you. And there are protections for, for unions. Now, this is like the exact opposite of unionization, because with this scam, it's, a, it's really a brilliant scam if you think about it. It's evil genius. 
they say, oh, you're not an employee of our company. You're an independent contractor. Now, people hear that, they say, oh, I want to be an independent contractor. It sounds like I have more autonomy and more freedom and all that stuff. No. What they've done is created this uh, legal categorization of independent contractor, which exempts you from any of the labor protections that would come with being an employee. And so they explained it there, that, you know, you don't get uh, the paid time off, for example. You don't get access to unemployment insurance if you get laid off. Um, and in Massachusetts, they have some of the best labor protections in the country, but it, it, it's for employees. And if you're not categorized as an employee, you don't get any of the protections. So there might be overtime rules associated uh, with being an employee, again, paid time off. Um, there's a lot of benefits of being an employee because you're treated more like a human being if you're an employee. If you're an independent contractor, they, you, know, you don't have any of those protections. And then also they did, like they did this thing in California, as they explained there, and, you know, they're trying to do the $15 an hour thing, but they've made a giant loophole, so you're not really making $15 an hour. So it, the independent contractor thing is just a giant scam, and it's a scam for the workers to get screwed and for the company to more or less rob these people blind. And so they're trying to, as they described, Uberize the economy everywhere. And if we don't nip it in the bud here, it could take over the entire country. And this is, this is the gig economy in action. You don't have the same kind of protections that jobs previously had uh, in this country. You don't have, you know, you can't really build a life around the kind of wages that these people are earning. And we got to band together against it. So, yes, they need to slap down this law. Again, I think it's a direct vote maybe that's happening on it. It was in California, and the propaganda worked, and it passed. Um, and I think that uh, these are going to keep popping up all over the place. We've got to slap down these laws. We've got to slap down the so-called right-to-work laws, which are just right-to-work for less. What we really need is the $15 minimum wage nationally, and we need the PRO Act, which is a pro-union piece of legislation, which would drastically help workers. Um, but look out. These scams are getting more and more sophisticated, man, and uh, credit to More Perfect Union for breaking it down in detail. All right, we are done, y'all. We are done. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. We're out. Peace.